You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. When a thing turns into its opposite, when love becomes hate, or life turns into death, it's explosive. was glorious and overwhelming. It was absolutely addictive. So, how is it working at the funeral home? It's a, it's a full-time job. I've never met anyone like you. I've never done this before. Why do you need to know all the details? I'm just curious. That's all anyone would be. What's this? This is a record of everything I've done in the last two weeks. This is not going to help you understand me. It's like looking into the sun without going blind. And I know what I have to do now. I just, I don't know what to do. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back in the booth is the one and only Mr. Rob St. Mary. I've seen bodies shining like stars. Also with us this week is Mr. Axel Cohagen. Just me and Cold Ethel hanging out. This week we are talking about the 1996 film from Lynn Stopkowicz, Kissed, based on a short story by Barbara Gowdy. The film stars Molly Parker as Sandra Larson, a young woman with an obsession with death. We follow her from her days as a girl to her life as a young woman and a mortician. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Kissed and don't want the movie ruined for you, please turn off the podcast, track down the movie, and come on back. We will be here for you. Now, Rob, when was the first time you saw Kissed, and what did you think? I saw it in theater. So this was in 1996. I remember it played at the main art theater. I was not working there yet. I have talked about the main many times on the show, but uh, I can't remember if it was when I was still in high school because I graduated in June of 96 or if it was after I got out, but I remember it was around that time. I was very uh, much into seeing every damn movie I could see in that period from about, I'd say, late uh, 93 until about early 97. I basically saw everything at the theater, good, bad, and indifferent, and uh, spent a lot of time at the main art theater, so I saw it. And uh, it really stuck with me. And what was funny is I I don't know if I've seen it on video. God, it's kind of been at least 10 years or more. And as I was watching it, like visually and from a dialogue aspect and things like that, there was a lot I really remember. And I know I've only seen this movie less than a handful of times. So um, I guess that's a good that's a good sign when uh, you have something that sticks with you like that. It's quality work. 
How about you, Axel? Well, actually, I remember seeing the preview first when I was at the uh, Uptown Theater in Minneapolis, and I was watching Sick, the Bob Flanagan documentary. And before that, there was this preview for a romantic comedy, a nice, light romantic comedy. And halfway through the preview, I thought, oh, they edited it wrong. It makes it look like she's sleeping with the dead. And then... It got to the end of the preview, and I thought, no, they, they edited it exactly right. She is sleeping with the dead. And I couldn't believe the the tone of the preview versus the content. And I thought, I have to see this movie. And when I tracked it down, I was not disappointed. <laughs> I saw this one uh, for the podcast. Uh, I remember hearing about this movie probably in 96 when it came out. And it's been on my radar ever since then. But fortunately, Robson, who suggested this one, gosh, couple years ago finally sat down and watched it and i was not disappointed and i can definitely see why you would uh, remember so many of the things from this there are so many striking visuals really nice moments i mean that the plot pretty darn straightforward which is nice and and it really uh it moves along i mean this movie's what uh, an hour and 20 minutes i don't think there's a wasted shot a wasted moment in the film everything really moves you towards the end of the story, which I appreciate. And then I had not read the short story. So, Rob, I know you read that, which is unusual because, as you say, you're functionally functionally illiterate. Can you um, tell us about the short story? You know, what's funny is, uh, as I was watching the movie this time, through the lens of um, reading the short story, We So Seldom Look on Love, that actually you gave me. Uh, we met for uh, dinner a few months back, and, and you had a copy of the book, the Barbara Gowdy book, which is a series of short stories. And as I was watching the film through the lens of this short story, I thought to myself, I go, you know what, actually the film, and this is not, a, is not to denigrate the, uh, the plotting of the film or anything like that, actually feels like a short story. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe it's just even my own mentality on it, but, um, it, a lot of the same things, uh, are in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward, uh, it's only about 10 pages. It's a, it's a rather short piece, but the, uh, the, the one big difference between the, the film and the book is that in the book, she's listed as sort of a Doris Day type character. So very blonde, um, you know, cliche in that way. And it's, I, I think it's interesting to compare that against uh, Molly Parker's look. Um, not that I think that a Doris Day character, I, I think it works better in the book than it would in the film. I think really the the characterization of Molly Parker and the way that Lynn Stopkowicz handles it in the film is quite good. So uh, they're both their own thing. But the thing that was really interesting in getting a chance to actually speak to Barbara Gowdy was her background and how she became a writer. Because unlike a lot of people who aspire to great artistic um, you know, uh, visions and, and creative life, um, in my interview with her, that really didn't seem to be her goal. <laughs> she kind of backed into it. So let's take a break and play an interview that I did recently with the author of the story that Kissed is based on, Barbara Gowdy. I'm Barbara Gowdy, and I write sometimes, and I um, look after stray and feral cats, and um, that's what I do. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Sounds good. 
Um, I don't know if I told you, but we're based in Detroit, so I believe you didn't uh, grow up too far away from us. I well, I didn't grow up in Windsor. I um, I was born there and was there for the first four years. My dad was American. He was born in Detroit. So yeah, right across the river, and then we moved to Don Mills, Canada's first North America's first planned community in 1954. Long time ago. And for growing up in a planned community or you know a suburb in that way, how do you feel that uh, affects your writing or um, sort of takes place in some way in what you do? Uh, well, I, I, you know, my first, well, actually my second book, I, I wrote this horrible historical novel first just to see if I could handle the, um, you know, the, handle the novel, handle the structure of the novel. But then I wrote Falling Angels, which is set in a place called, like Don Mills, I forget what I call it, Glen Mills, I think. And um, it, it it was very barren. And, um, you know, there was a bookmobile, but no library. And I'd read... And the stories we had in Canada then were all um, British children's books, British fairy tales, which were so, the settings were so ornate, you know, and, and Don Mills was so bleak, little sticks for trees. And um, so I think I had to imagine a fuller life, but it was very safe. We were allowed to run wild and we wouldn't get hit by cars and everybody looked the same and had the same income level. It was sort of robotic in that way. Um, and, and so I, I think I became aware of more subtle differences between people and their houses and and um, the way they looked and their characters because otherwise on the surface we were very much alike. I mean, at the same time you talked about no library but a bookmobile. Was reading always something as far back as you remember for you? Yeah. Um, my mother was a reader and she took us to the bookmobile and then eventually there was a library in Mills and... Um, um, yeah, always, always reading. We all were. I read a lot of comic books too. Um, they were, you know, Archie and um, Casper the Friendly Ghost and Superman. And um, I had, a, I have a sister a year older and a brother a year older, and um, so I think that always helps to have older brothers and sisters. Not too much older because you're sort of at their level, but not quite. So you always have a, a bar to uh, reach for. So I, I read what they read, and I was always a little ahead of myself as a, as a result. It's ahead of my age, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. And with that, when did you go from, you know, r- reading and obviously having a, an appetite for that to starting to write and and really develop your own stories and, and books in that way? Rather late. Um, I, I um, didn't know quite what to do. We didn't have a whole lot of money. And um, when I left high school... I had to work a year to get some money to go to university, and in those days, there weren't grants or bursaries that I knew of, and um, and I just worked in a car dealership, and then uh, I went to university for a year, and then I, I dropped out because, frankly, I couldn't I couldn't afford the next year's tuition, and I, I became a licensed stockbroker, and I and I decided to study music, and um, I had this dream to be a classical pianist, which was kind of ludicrous, and. Um, but I, I worked really hard. I was practicing like eight hours a day for years. And um, and in the meantime, I got a job at a small publishing house uh, because I knew typing in shorthand and I was answering the phone. And because I studied music, they gave me a music book to edit and then I started editing. And, you know, this all sounds so magical and it was. Um, these Nobody applied for that job. Um, today, there would have been, you know, 300 PhD English students applying for the job and not even getting paid, being 
being interns. And um, I got paid and I got a book edit and, and gradually I started editing and realized that um, I wanted to write rather than edit. Edit felt like kind of being a wet nurse and rather than delivering the baby. So um, I started to write and uh, my first novel got published and it wasn't very good and I'm glad it's out of print. Um, and then that, that encouraged me to keep going. So um, but it wasn't a. I had no longing to be a writer when I was growing up, um, and I didn't have my first novel published till I was thirty-eight. Thirty-eight, yeah. Um, Thirty-nine, the next novel, and forty-two, the stories. So I'm a late bloomer. It's kind of fascinating that you started sort of in the uh, in the office and then became a writer as opposed to being a writer and then working in the office. Do you think that understanding sort of how publishing worked um, helped you? Uh, what helped me was connections. <laughs> I mean, I had I had writers, I had connections in the publishing business. So I knew that my manuscripts would get read. Um, that helped, um, and also I kind of I knew uh, you know my my job after taking dictation and answering the phone. And before I edited the first novel, I, I was reading a lot of manuscripts that came in, and I, and I got a, a flesh pile, you know. I got a, um, I got a sense for what publishers were looking for. And, and, and also, my confidence was buoyed by reading so many bad finished novels and, and, and being amazed by people's nerve that they would think that this was publishable. So I thought, well... At least I can probably write a novel that gets rejected. Um, I, 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 I didn't have a whole lot of hope in the beginning, and um, it was just something to do. I knew I wanted to do something creative, but I, I just wasn't sure what, and the uh, music wasn't working out. So um, I, I tried writing. In fact, I'm a novelist and short story writer because I'm a failed pianist. <laughs> and I think that gave me confidence to be a writer in the sense that since it wasn't my big dream, if I were shot, I'd already been shot down. Um, regarding having a music career, so um, my big dream was shattered. So my my B plan wasn't as important to me. And I, I know that sounds kind of um, disingenuous or even maddening, but um, I was just uh, and also I, I started um, writing, getting published at a time when there weren't so many writers. There weren't creative writing classes. There weren't billions of great writers being produced every year. I even teach creative writing sometimes, and I always think I'm grooming my executioners because. There's so many good writers now, and there, there weren't a whole lot back in in the eighties. I mean, there were lots, but there weren't they weren't everywhere. There weren't not everybody was writing a novel. There's a, a few reviewers that I've read that say that they feel you write often about outcasts and sort of fringe dwellers, and and make them um, so human and bring so much humanity to these people. And I was wondering how you see your own work. Um. I think that I've, I guess, you know, I always see my work in retrospect. I don't really know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um, I read, I've read um, reviews and discussions of my work um, with the same curiosity as perhaps you, you did. Um, and sometimes I think, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, I, I write pretty unconsciously. Um, but I guess um, were I to undergo therapy, and I've never done that, um, I would be told that, um, I'm, you know, trying to protect my my own sense of being an outcast, and I, I'm not sure where that came from. Um, but I, 
you know, I, I didn't look all that different from other kids, and I had lots of friends. I don't know why I felt slightly different, but I, I always did. And um, in my family, we always rooted for the underdog. And so it was in me to, um, quite naturally, uh, to kind of extend my sympathy beyond my my family circle and my community. And I was, I, I was naturally curious, and so was my mother. It must be in me somehow genetically about people who didn't quite fit in. I, I, um, I was curious about how they did it. I, as I get older, I'm increasingly curious. I think life is hard. I think it gets harder because you're not as healthy as you were. And um, at least I'm not. And, and I, I just, I'm always curious about how people cope. How do, how do they manage it? How do, why aren't more people killing themselves? Life is so hard, especially when your heart breaks or you feel really different or um, you're, you're shunned or you're, you're made to feel evil or wrong. I, I, and I'm, these people, these people who manage despite that are, are, are my heroes. With that, I, I think that we get a, a broad range of, of those kind of people in, in your book, uh, We So Seldom Look on Love, and wanted to ask you about how, <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to ask you how that book developed, and then specifically the title story, which uh, was the basis for the film that we'll talk about. I wrote those stories in the late 80s after my novel, uh, Falling Angels, and I thought, well, see if I can handle, written two novels, I'll see if I can handle short stories now. And I had all these ideas, and they were all sort of based, every one of them, every story in that collection is based on something I'd heard about and led to believe was true, even the two-headed man. My brother-in-law um, family was from mainland China, and he said there was some guy in China on a documentary working in the rice patties who had two heads it's not impossible usually the second head is pretty vestigial it's not all that conscious but um and then i think on cbc i heard about a story about a man who had two heads and cut off one and was charged with murder and he was he was pleading suicide so it was <laughs> it was a real ethical dilemma and i didn't really care whether it was true um, certainly the story Sophie about a woman with four legs is based on a real um, quote-unquote freak, which is what they called themselves back then, if you've seen the movie Freaks. And, um, and um, she had children out of those vaginas. This interested me in my 30s, I think more so than it does now, and I think because partly because my marriage was falling apart and my life was kind of in chaos. And so I also I didn't think anyone would read those stories. I, I didn't have much of a reputation. My books didn't sell all that well. And um, so I, I thought I could write something risky and it didn't matter. I remember the night before that book um, came out and I knew I was getting a review in the Globe and Mail, which was a big deal back in 1992, a national newspaper. And I I thought, oh, what have I written? What have I done? And I got up very early to go out and get the newspaper and I was crossing a park and I felt nauseous and vomited. And a police car pulled up and said, are you all right, miss? And I said, oh, it's okay. I'm just going to get my glow and mail review. Not that they understood what that meant. But um, I was sort of myself shocked at what I'd done, what I'd let out there. And um, the title story, uh, as you probably know, because it's now online, it wasn't then. I read about it in a magazine called Apocalypse Culture. But the interview, there was a woman named Karen Greenlee in California who had sex with dead men and was arrested for commandeering a hearse and making love to the dead male occupant and writing poems to him. And, and nobody expects a necrophile to 
be female. So that that was kind of interesting. And I wasn't at all interested in necrophilia or death. I just was interested in her, what really interested me. And it wasn't even her having sex with the dead man so much as her writing poems to him and kind of loving him. Um, and I read that interview and stole a lot of what she said for my story, including what she does with dead men. It's nothing that would have occurred to me. I think I elevated her um, uh, motivation into a kind of more spiritual, intellectual realm than it was. I think it was probably more lustful than it was. But she, she I think she did love these men, and um, the um, psychology behind that is probably simply because they couldn't reject her and they couldn't judge her, and she felt free. I think she even admitted that, the real necrophile. Um, but I, I used it as a platform to talk about how we feel about death and bodies and how removed we are, and certainly probably were more so 30 years ago, from from death, including the death of animals, the way we meet packaged. We don't realize we're eating little dead lambs. And um, and how she she was different from all that. She She actually was turned on by the smell of, a morgue. I've been into a morgue and I, uh, I just couldn't stop vomiting. I, I'm not turned on by it at all. I'm repulsed as most people are. But, um, you know, she was, again, different and that was interesting to me. So I wrote that story and I, and I owe her a lot because um, I owe the real Karen Greenlee, who I think is still around, a lot. I think it's interesting that you you bring that up. I mean, I I did uh, research a bit of the Karen Greenlee story, but also sort of talking about death as a distant thing, um, because mm-hmm. I think maybe um, you know my grandparents' generation or those older generations, you know, we didn't take a dead body to a funeral home. They were laid out in the parlor at home, mm-hmm. and people came mm-hmm. to visit, and then they were laid to rest, you know, in the cemetery or whatnot. So there was much more of a connection in that way. We didn't take our elderly and put them in homes. So uh, really, it seems like maybe what what you're talking about is sort of this distance from from that experience as part of sort of the circle, quote-unquote, sorry, uh, cliche of life. And a distance from, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in bodies. That's, all, that's obvious throughout that book. And the distance just from the body, um, you know, women give birth in hospitals. There are women trying to get back to the old ways that have been since the late 60s of having hippies having babies and, and wet nurses having babies at home. But people are generally kind of scared of that and would prefer to have a baby in a hospital and babies in incubators, babies cut out of their, their wounds and um, and that saves the baby. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just interesting to me the, the distance we have from both childbirth and death. It's not only that the body would be laid out in the parlor, but for tens of thousands of years, women especially would be the one who dealt with the dead baby, their bodies, dressed the bodies, brought babies into the world. Um, the, the body wasn't as foreign and disgusting as alien as it has become. And um, again, I bring animals into the equation because I'm an animal rights person. Um, you know, it was a time when we slaughtered, made our own meat. We didn't depend on other people to do so-called dirty work for us. And I think the dirty work of birth and death is something we'd also rather hand off. And um, I think it, we are less we are less healthy for that. We, our, our relationship with birth and especially death, and especially, I guess, 
childbirth. I mean, babies that die at birth, that must be pretty horrible, but it all seems uh, wrong, medieval, distant, dirty, and um, I, I, I wanted to do without, I guess. Do you remember when there was talk of a film adaptation, and what did you think when they brought it up to you? I did. Um, Lynn Stopkowicz called me. So the collection came out in 1992, and Lynn Stopkowicz, I think, called me in 1994 or five, and uh, wanted to talk to me, and, and I met this young woman, um, and I mean, she'd made a feature before, and she wanted to buy the rights, and I... And I liked her, and I thought good luck to her. I couldn't imagine without the inner story how she would how she would manage, you know, because film is so much more visual and is and is shown, not told. Um, I think that's why she had she had the voiceover. I'm not crazy about voiceovers in in movies, but I I don't think she had much of a choice. And um, and so then I didn't see a script. I saw a rough cut. And I have some suggestions about that. But before the rough cut and the shooting, I did a reading in Vancouver, and Lynn Stofkowitz showed up with Molly Parker and, and said this was going to be an ecophile, you know. And I, um, I was, I was startled at how pretty she was and how elegant. It was like sort of having Audrey Hepburn for the necrophile. And um, I thought, okay, this may work because she was bringing elegance into the picture, you know. I think, that, frankly, aside from Lynn's talent, um, that movie worked because of Molly Parker. Yeah, she's just excellent in there. And I remember seeing it when it came out and then years later watching her appear in other places and and still finding her to be the, the great actress that I enjoyed back when Kiss came out. Yes, and, and she has um, a beauty and sensitivity and elegance in her face. There's nothing coarse about her um, or disgusting or repellent. So she she um, works sort of an antithesis to the to the idea of necrophilia. And then, then how do you how do you match this face up with this deed? I think it was quite clever of of, um, of uh, Lynn to cast her it, in the. Um, story, I think I say she looks sort of like Doris Day. I make her more wholesome um, and, but she, and pretty because the real Karen Greenlee when she was young was quite pretty and, and um, men especially <laughs> were all asking, well, you know, she could get a guy, so what, why does she need a dead guy? And that was the kind of basic um, uh, ignorance about her the psychology of women and what sex is for women and, and, and more about intimacy than anything else and, and and the real Karen Greenlee, I think, could only be, well, the real Karen Greenlee, the real necrophile, could only be um, intimate with um, men who couldn't see her, couldn't judge her, couldn't reject her, as I said. So sort of during the pre-production and production, um, they were just off doing their thing and you're off doing your mm -hmm. thing. So there really wasn't a lot mm -hmm. of communication in that way? No, um, I did see a rough cut, and there was some communications there. I was just sort of my main concern was getting rid of as much voiceover as possible. But uh, and then uh, I went to the first screening. I think it was at the Toronto Film Festival, and nineteen ninety. What was that? Nineteen. I can't remember the year it came out. Um, nineteen ninety-six, and uh, I went with a friend, and I sat in the row uh, in front of. 
the guy who Mr. played Mr. Wallace, Shay Brazil, and he was looking a little nervous. And um, I think Peter Outerbridge's parents, somebody's parents were there. Everybody was kind of looking nervous, the people that were in the audience and not in the movie, <laughs> sort of looking nervous to their family members who were in the movie. And um, that's the first time I thought, gee, my poor parents had to read this story, you know, and think, well, what have I wrought um, in me? And uh, I said, oh, I turned around and I said to somebody's parents, um, I said, oh, don't worry, my parents survived, you know, the publishing of the story. Uh, and the movie's actually quite tasteful. It's not lurid. And um, and that's when I saw it in the theater and it was well-received. And uh, so... It, I was I was very surprised that it that it that it became a movie and that it worked as a movie. Yeah, like I said, I was wondering uh, what your take on the reactions were to the film. You know, any review or press? Was there anything that you heard that you were like, well, they obviously didn't get it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there were there were really good reviews. Um, who were those two film reviewers who did two thumbs up guys? One of them died. And there were the American reviewers. I can't remember, but I was at some book um, a few year later. I was at some book festival in the states, and some big film reviewer had given it a really good review, like four out of five stars. Was there, and he crossed the room. He he had published his own book, and gave me the thumbs up, and I thought, what's that about? And then I realized, oh, that's about Kissed, and um. Obviously, they couldn't use We So Seldom Look in Love. That title wouldn't work for a movie. You know, I think it worked for the book because um, I quite consciously, well, there is an, a, a poem by Frank O'Hara called Ode on Necrophilia. Um, the poem goes, well, it is better that someone loved them and we so seldom look on love that it seems heinous. I don't quite know what that poem means. We so seldom look on love as opposed to at love. or, um, But... I liked it, and it gave it a kind of literary patina. Once again, I was trying to give an elegant and literary patina to a subject matter that most people would consider grotesque and disgusting, and so so would I. um, I just read the story for the first time again um, last night. I haven't read it in over 20 years. And I think I pulled it off, but I can't quite remember why. I mean, coming up with reasons I remember saying why I wrote it, but actually at this age and this time in my life, I can't quite remember why I wrote it. Um, I'm glad there's still interest in it in the, in the movie, but um, I, I, I can't say that if I heard about it now, I would even read it if someone else had written it. Strange <laughs> <laughs> as that may sound. You know, it's, it's always interesting how uh, artists look at their work and, and another book of yours that was adapted was Falling Angels and wanted to ask you how you thought about that adaptation and just sort of adaptations of your work in general. Um, that that was written by Esther Spalding. She wrote the screenplay. She's very good. And uh, I, thought it, I thought it was an excellent screenplay and um, I thought it was really well executed. Um, there were things I would have changed. I, I, I think that must be true of every uh, novelist whose work is adapted for screenplay. I didn't write the screenplay. I was involved in it to the degree that I saw many drafts. And um, uh, and I uh, was there for some of the shooting um, in, in Manitoba uh, where it was shot. But... Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't see a rough cut. I think I, I saw it when it was done, and um, 
you have to kind of surrender. If you're not going to write the screenplay and you're not going to be an executive producer or invest in it, or you don't really, if, if you hand over the rights and you take the money, you do have to surrender to somebody else's artistic vision of, of what you've done and, um, and understand that it will be different and it will evolve. So, um, I, I, um, I, I was, I was happy with it. Um, as I say, with every adaptation, there's been some adaptations for television of my stories too. The two-headed man, <laughs> there was an adaptation that was actually very funny. It, I mean, unintentionally, but it was funny and, um, and quite wonderful, I think. Uh, and it was very true word for word to the story. But that doesn't necessarily make for the best adaptation, as I'm sure you well know. Uh, it's, it's a different genre. It's 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 as different as country and western music and and opera. Sometimes I think. Um, so so my feelings about the films are kind of um, not important because um, I, I bring too much of a vested interest in it. I think. Do you find that they help you in terms of people finding out more about who you are? Because they go, oh, this is based on a book. Maybe I should read the book. Or is that just sort of negligible? That's almost negligible, I think. Um, I saw some really horrible statistics online yesterday about the people who read novels. I mean, like 56% of people after high school never read a book again. 72% never read a novel. I mean, it, the, the, so people who go to films don't necessarily read novels. And um, um, but I, I watch a lot of films, but I do sometimes feel it's not as engaging in a sense intellectually as reading because it's it's more relaxing. It's all presented to you and you're going to absorb it if, if all you do is open your ears and your eyes. Whereas um, when you read, uh, I, just, I, I find it a little more um, taxing, you know, which has been, and especially a, a long book or a difficult book. So um, I, I don't think, I don't think films bring anybody to the work. I haven't noticed that with my own stuff anyway. I think a really big film um, like Lord of the Rings brought people to the, to the book, but I don't think um, a small independent movie necessarily increases awareness of the fiction. And the novel. Yeah. Well, talking about the book uh, and just sort of looping back to the front there for a second, um, you talked about going out to get that Globe and Mail review. How was the Globe and yeah. Mail review? It was great. The reviews for What's the Southern Look and Love were great. I mean, to my surprise, to my uh, amazement, um, it, it was a great review. And um, maybe it was the time. I actually don't think reviews would be so good now. There's so much sensitivity, you know, about um, affliction and difference. And, um, well, I tried to be sympathetic as I could about lives entirely different from mine. I don't I don't know if um, the reception w would have been as open or generous as it was then. The, the, the reviews are, I don't even think I got a bad review. I'm not aware of a bad review for that book, and it was published around the world. And um, it it's actually, I think, the most popular of my books, strangely enough. Oh, it's not necessarily a review, but I guess it could be taken as. I uh, wanted to ask you about your honor of the Order of Canada. Um, how did that come about, and what do you remember about receiving it? <laughs> well, that was in 2008, um, after Helpless came out, a book I wrote again. Uh, this wasn't so well-received. I wrote a, a, a child is abducted by a guy with pathetic feelings, and while he doesn't act on them, 
um, he does abduct the girl, and um, and then he he believes he's supposed to be protecting her, um, but he does abduct her, kidnap her, and the the book is told from various points of view, mainly the abductors, and that got me in a lot of trouble because at the time it was published. Um, a little girl named Madeline, Madeline McCann was abducted, and it was a big story. And in fact, a tour of mine was canceled in England as if I were a spokesman for pedophiles and child abductors. And um, the lines between fiction and, and reality were blurred, and um, uh, that book really suffered. So I was kind of in a funk about, well, that's it. I'm just going to talk about nice, pretty things and write about wonderful, refined um, um sweet things, and then I was just told that I was getting this Order of Canada, and I um, i don't know, everybody's anonymous who, who recommends it and makes it happen, so I don't know quite how that happened. Maybe there were certain writers in Canada who felt sorry for the failure of Helpless, my latest book, or maybe they felt badly for me because my mother was dying at that point, but anyway, I, I don't know why I got it. And I went to Ottawa, and... Um, you know, had the ribbons pinned on me and got medals, which I've never worn. I, I, I um, I, it's just a, just a luck of a draw why some people, I mean, the guy before me who got it was an apple farmer, so, um, I'm not quite sure. It is an honor, but I'm, I'm not sure why I got it, um, as opposed to other writers who haven't got it. And, um, I, I felt, I, I felt very honored, of course. I felt very honored when I got more so because, I guess I shouldn't say this, I'll get in trouble, but I did feel more honored when I got a Guggenheim Fellowship because uh, that that's only Guggenheim Fellowship for for the category of fiction that I got it for. It was only for fiction writers, whereas the Order of Canada is for all sorts of um, walks of life. And um, I'm not sure, I'm not even sure if I didn't even get it for my animal rights work or... Um, anyway... Somebody thought I should get it, and I took it. You also uh, talked about the Guggenheim. Um, when when was that? I got that, I think, about 2012. You have to apply, and um, um, everybody's always applying. You have to have written a certain number of books and have a certain, um, I guess, number of views and international reputation, stuff like that, or, or reputation in the States. And once again, I had no expectations, but I, I guess I was lucky. Um, uh, you're really lucky in this business if you get a prize, and it has a lot to do with who's on the jury, whether you have advocates on the jury or not, and I must have had some. So that was pretty great. I felt really good about that um, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a university dropout. I don't even have an English degree. And, um, you know, what was a bum like me getting a Guggenheim fellowship for? I thought that was pretty neat. As for uh, your work now, what are some of the things that you're working on? Anything that readers can expect soon? I have a book coming out in April called Little Sister, and it's about, um, you know, I'm very interested in other people's consciousnesses and consciousness in general. And I mean, as a writer is, we create characters and wander around in their consciousness. And um, But I have a character who enters the mind of another woman, a woman completely unlike her, and she does this periodically during thunderstorms. It's kind of a being John Malkovich scenario, except she doesn't intend to enter this woman, and also she does enter her consciousness. She knows what this woman feels when she's inside her, and she becomes very attached to her and very 
um, obsessed by the real woman in the real world who she's never met, but she knows exists. And um, periodically she's inside this other woman. And, and I guess it's it's just uh, taking a scalpel a bit further into the mind of the other, which has always been alluring to me. And if readers are interested, where's the best place to stay up to date online with your work? I have a website that I haven't been keeping up to date, but um, <laughs> probably there eventually um, when, I, when I keep it, put it up, when I get it up to date. The, the book itself can be ordered online now and pre-ordered, but it's um, coming out in, in April here and in the States. Is there anything else you want to add that maybe I forgot to ask you about? Let's see. Um, yeah, I know that this is mostly about uh, kissed. Uh, well, I like this. I certainly like the title. As I said, I, they couldn't use Lisa Solomon on love. I like the title. And um, um, I can't really think. No, sorry. I can't think of anything else. The only thing I could think of is that because if you write or there's a film that's out about a certain topic, did you ever receive any mail from anyone or you know, people contacting you going, you know what it's like to live like me or something, you know, who may have been necrophiles. I don't know. I haven't received any mail from necrophiles over the years. And, um, I, you know, I made sure I was sort of hard to contact. I, my, my phone number's on the list. And I, I don't post anything about this on Facebook. Somebody could get hold of me on Facebook. I think they're more apt to get hold of Karen Greenlee than me. Um, I have had some creeps over the years that forced me to change my phone number of guys who just thought um, because I, of what I wrote, I must be really hot. I don't think I am particularly. And, um, and you know, thought, and I had to change my phone call. Sometimes I had to get um, police to, to go see them and shut them up. That has happened. Um, but that's what you get when you write what I've written. And... Um, uh, you know, I obviously hit a court. I, it was only upsetting insofar as I felt physically threatened, but otherwise I thought, well, that's reaction. Somebody's um, somebody's interested. But as I said, I said to you, Robert, you know, I'm really, I'm really not myself at all interested in in necrophilia. I'm not a, a, I don't have any, you know, skulls in my house. I'm not interested in dead bodies at all. Quite the opposite. But I was interested in in a woman who. Who was interested and and who fell in love with dead people? That was kind of interesting to me. Yeah, it just seems that sometimes people uh, forget that because you play a part or you write about a certain thing that um, somehow you're an advocate. <laughs> you know, which isn't had, necessarily the case. I spent my writing life. Uh, I spent my writing life trying to separate myself from my my characters because a lot of writers, more so than previously, I think, is a lot of writers are from other parts of the world so a lot of their fiction is about their own experience you know and they have big stories to tell and they're fictionalizing them somewhat but a lot of writers are writing uh, about their own fictionalizing their own life stories and I've never done that I I, I, um, I completely make stuff up out of the blue you know I've written from the point of view of African elephants and I've certainly never been an African elephant and um and so I spend my money in life kind of saying, kind of disassociate myself because it did not be. Obviously, it comes out of my mind and my curiosity, and I don't even do that much research. It's just um, I'm I'm a leap of imagination writer, and that's just who I am. And I, 
I'm not really interested in writing about my own experience. I was thinking I'm getting older and I should write a memoir, but it just doesn't it just doesn't appeal to me. So um, for now, I shall write about the lives of others, um, and that's that's where my my passion lies. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're most welcome, Robert. Good luck to you. That was Barbara Gowdy and her book, We So Seldom Look on Love is the Basis for Kiss. And, of course, you can find out more about that and pick that up through the website at projection-booth.com. So the movie, it's nice that it kind of starts with, well, the movie starts with the end of the film and then takes us back into the beginning and kind of shows us who this person is, who is Sandra Larson. And um, we get... Watching it again yesterday, uh, I realized that there's a lot more at the beginning than I necessarily saw the first time that I watched it. That you really get kind of a, a feel for how the movie ends from the beginning. But they do it in such a way that it's not giving anything away, which I appreciate. We don't necessarily know who this person is. She gets a voiceover, which is good. Very sparingly used. I mean, we get a little bit of that at the beginning, and then every once in a while we'll get a little bit more as we go along. And then I like at the end there's one part where she is basically talking in voiceover, and it matches up to her lips um, as if she was telling it to us right then though she's not necessarily breaking the fourth wall but going back into her childhood we get to see her uh find this dead bird and the um i don't know if she had was creating these rituals right then but she has this really ritualistic way that she deals with death and there's this whole thing where she will say things three times um it, it kind of reminds me of like an ocd kind of thing i shroud the body shroud the body shroud little sparrow with broken wing i lower the body lower the body lower the body and this way that she treats death with both respect and awe uh, is very interesting. Um, I was trying to remember how I first uh, experienced death and dead animals and seeing dead things when I was a kid while watching this, and um, it, uh, it it didn't really come back to me. But seeing how she handled it was really fascinating. I think it's interesting in here that it's all told through her and there's not much interaction with her family. So we really don't know how much of this, uh, not that her parents, you know, were into it too. I don't know anything like that. It's not in the book either, but we do get a feeling of sort of other. She's at the birthday party and the, the kids are playing spin the bottle and she either is kind of off to the side because, well, they think she's weird. I think more than likely she just sort of sets herself apart from everyone else. Um, I get the feeling that she's kind of a very lonely child. Um, she has these these interests that people 
you know, she, she tries to bring one friend of hers into it. And then, you know, they're kind of like, whoa, what, you know, that's, that's a bit too far. Like I'll, I'll go with you this far, but I ain't going that far kind of thing. So there's a, there's a definite, um, um, I, I guess isolation that she feels from, from others that is as far back as being, I don't know, like eight, nine years old. I couldn't help watching it, thinking about fetish objects and transition objects and, this was her form of, you know, transcendence is that she would find death, which is an abject thing for so many people that they, they wish to push away. And this is where you expect a parent to be explaining why she's that way and you don't get it. And so she is, you know, finding these dead objects, these dead animals, and she has this ritual. And through that, she's able to create beauty and meaning in, in, in an angelic moment for her. And, you know, on one hand, and I've, I felt this both the times I've watched this film, that it's very, it's much more beautiful than you expect, and there's a lot of meaning. It's not a simply a shock-filled movie, but on the other hand, the second time watching it, having worked more in fields involving psychology, I really wanted to see those parents to find out what was driving her towards these objects instead of finding connections with other living human beings. And I think that's part of the mystery of this film is that you don't get to know. Well, we get a very brief moment with her mother when her mother tells her that uh, Carol will not be playing with her anymore. Uh, Carol being the uh, friend with the one bad eye who uh, Sandra tries to bring into this and kind of takes her slowly through these steps, which I found very interesting to see how she uh, kind of is initiating Carol into these uh, uh, the things that Sandra is into. And then I'm guessing, and I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that the man at the flower shop who sends Sandra over to the funeral home that we see later on, and she pulls up in a van that says Larson's Flowers, I'm guessing that that's her dad. But it's not really explained, and I appreciate that we don't see the parents because so much of this could turn into a psychological case study. And maybe that's the inference for us is that if your folks own a flower shop, you probably have been going to funerals ever since you were, you know, small. So maybe there's some sort of thing for her that instead of these being horrible things, she sees them as things of beauty. And that's where that kind of comes from. I don't know. We're, we're led to kind of put that together in our own minds. You were talking about Mike, your own experiences with, uh, with death in being, being a child. And I, I think I was thinking about sort of like two aspects for myself. And one was, um, my dad was involved in various veterans groups. So I remember as a kid, five, six, seven years old, going to a lot of military funerals. And, um, but when it came to small things like birds, I remember there was a friend of mine who had, his father had gotten him a pellet gun. Um, and I remember we were in the backyard and he shot a bird like off a, you know, a telephone wire or something like that. And I remember like we went over and we found the bird and I felt like really bad after he did that. I was like, dude, I'm like, this is awful. Like, I guess we should just stick to cans and stuff, you know, just felt really guilty afterwards, which I guess is uh, what you should, you know, when you're a kid and something like that happens. Yes, the ones who uh, who enjoy it are the ones you really need to look out for. Which uh, I'll bring that up later when we get into the uh, films and other media that you might want to consider um, uh, related to this, if you like, Kissed. The experience I remember with 
death and then small animals and still kind of upsets me is uh, when my grandmother had cancer, we spent a lot of time out on the farm she was at, keeping her company, taking care of her. It was getting near the end. And we grew really attached to a group of like five or six cats. They're feral cats in the barn. And one day we got out there. I would have been early elementary school still. And there had been a tomcat that had gone through. And so we f- would find these mutilated corpses of the cats around the farm. And I remember not only being scared, scared and sad but also really upset and confused that you could just have that happen and my dad died when i was 10 weeks old so death had always been around but that experience was just was very upsetting the the only good part of it is is the two cats that were still alive we took home and kept for like 15 years yeah i should say that as we're recording this um my uh, oldest dog, Nova, is actually up in our uh, our spare bedroom. He passed away this morning about three hours ago, so death is really close to me at the moment. So it's, um, I can't say ironic that we're recording this episode today, but it definitely is hitting close to home, especially seeing, you know, the way that... Uh, the character of Sandra treats these bodies with respect the way that she uh, is just so fascinated. I mean, the way that she holds this dead bird and is rubbing it on her. And we get that often as we see her rubbing the bird on her. We see a chipmunk later on that she's rubbing on her and then eventually uh, human bodies. And to hear her talk about how she loves the stillness of death, the smell of death, the feel of it, and she really gets into all of those senses. And you can see later on, after she kisses a corpse, that she is smelling her hand and putting her hand over her mouth to kind of touch her lips because they had touched a dead body. And I really like those little touches that Molly Parker brings to the character She's just, um, I, I agree with you, Rob, that I don't think that a, uh, a Buxom Doris Day type would have worked in this role necessarily as much as Molly Parker. And then the, the young girl that plays the younger Molly Parker character, the younger Sandra character, just how fragile they look and the way that their fragility kind of transfers to their respect of the dead, and then also that kind of uh, the fleeting nature of life. I mean, that seems like so much of what this film is about is just that thin line between what it takes to be alive and to be dead. And I would think that a lot of this with the the ritualization um, of death that she has, it seems like that's her way almost, to me anyway, to control death, to kind of stave it off. Well, I was looking at it sort of two ways in terms of control. There's, um, you know, the idea of engaging with something um, allows you to have uh, power over it. That's a very uh, gestalt concept, I guess, uh, in psychology. I mean, this is the the old joke that uh, former uh, White House uh, helper to Nixon uh, during Watergate, G. Gordon Liddy, had a fear of rats, so therefore he ate a rat to get over his fear of rats. But I also think for her, uh, in this situation, there may be an issue of 
just general control of uh, who you're with emotionally and being emotionally available. And as we all know, uh, as live human beings, I would say the three of us have all been in some form of a relationship with someone uh, in an intimate manner. And uh, those can be very unpredictable at times. Uh, you think everything's going the way that you think it's going. Uh, not necessarily. Um, even the best relationships at times can be a challenge. And uh, for me, I was thinking, well, you know, here's someone who um, is maybe fearful of the world, you know, uh, can't really uh, engage with it in a very direct manner in, in which everyone else does. So uh, this allows an aspect of control um, in those very personal and very close uh, situations. Well, and to that point, I mean, she is bringing Carol into this, and Carol is kind of her, her best friend at this point, the only one who will pay attention to her at that party, and she seems to kind of understand where Sandra is coming from when it comes to these rituals and these funerals that she's giving, even though she doesn't do them as well as Sandra does in Sandra's mind, this whole thing where they bury the bodies, but then Sandra will come back later and give them, in her mind, a proper funeral. And that involves this whole, again, ritualistic thing where she basically takes off all of her clothes and spins around in circles. And when she finally tries to introduce the, the moment, one of the best moments of the film to me is there are three things that are going on here where we have the uh, she finally starts to do the whole taking off of the clothes and spinning in circles with Carol, and uh, she's rubbing the chipmunk on her, uh, and the chipmunk leaves a little bit of blood on her neck, and that also is the same time that she has her first period. It just is too much for uh, Carol to handle this whole thing that Sandra is doing with the rubbing of the chipmunk on her and she runs away. So it's like she uh, is sexually awakened and loses her friend right at the same moment. And it just uh, so much of the rest of the movie kind of owes itself to that moment. And I would say that any filmmaker who wants to know about economy and expressing big ideas without taking a whole bunch of time should watch that scene because you get all of that information visually without any voiceover. There's no confusion, and then you're moving on, and it's absolutely brilliantly directed. And we don't really even see Molly Parker until we're 12 minutes into this film, and then when we see her, I actually had a hard time recognizing that it was Molly Parker. I was thinking that they were going to ha have a third actress in there because Molly Parker, I'm used to her from things like Deadwood and other films that she's made over the last few years, uh, TV shows, seeing her so, I don't know, the, the term that came to my mind was well scrubbed and just seeing her without, it looked like any makeup or makeup that made it look like no makeup and her long hair. She looked so young it was just amazing to look at her and and it took me a few minutes until she started to speak to say no that's that's her that's i mean that's only 1996 uh so i know that she was obviously a lot younger than she is today but she just looked like a baby in those scenes when she gets older in the film when she goes to college and has a shorter haircut i think they allow her to look a lot um more her age at that point but in those first few moments i was really taken aback by who this actress was one of the things that i want to talk about in here is beyond her is other characters. Now, it is a very small film. I mean, there's probably 
10 speaking roles, if that. And I am fascinated by the mortician and her. Like, I almost get the feeling that um, the the gentleman who is the mortician, who runs the funeral home that she goes to work for, that in a way, he is, I guess I would say maybe flattered that someone like Sandra would be interested in what he does. You know, Mr. Wallace, it's like, oh, well, why would someone like you be interested in this? And then there almost comes a point, in, but almost a feeling that maybe he knows what's going on with mm-hmm. her. Like he get like, and that maybe I'm, I don't want to go even that step further that, that maybe he even understands, like, not only does he know, but maybe he understands, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, there is that very telling line from the guy who plays the janitor. What's his name? Jan, uh, who talks about. Don't let him fool you. He's weak like everyone else. All I hear is his dirty jokes. He has no respect. Mr. Wallace is a troubled man. What do you mean? He likes the boys. I caught him once. I asked him why. He said, what does it matter? It's all dead flesh. They can't feel anything. What do you think? It almost seems like everybody is in the know when it comes to that. Like, it almost seems like it's okay, Sandra, for you to like these young men because it's a uh, a heterosexual relationship, whereas it's a, a bridge too far when it comes to Mr. Wallace liking the young boys. And especially because Jan uh, says that Mr. Wallace says that, who cares, it's dead flesh. But Jan sees that there's more to it than that, that he sees that spark of life, which I think Sandra sees, and that's what draws her to these dead bodies, is that that spark and that shine that she sees, and the shine that we get visually throughout so much of this film. I also expected for there to be a, a scene or a some sort of a, oh, this is what's really going on, that would tie it all up. And when the movie was over and they left these relationships ambiguous, I was really happy because... It meant that the more I thought of the movie, the more I was wondering and interacting with it, as opposed to just taking a like bill of sale of what I was supposed to believe about it. But I wondered, Rob, pretty much all the same things you did about her relationship with the funeral director. In that moment when the funeral director shows her, when she comes to him and says, I want to learn the art, and I love that she calls it the art, the art of embalming, and the way that he then treats the body and and shows uh, how the embalming is done. I mean, embalming is not a pleasant experience by any means. I remember reading as a kid, my my father died when I was uh, two and a half years old, so I had a lot of death around me as well. And I remember reading a book, I think it was called On Death and Dying, and reading about embalming rituals in the U.S. and just all the things that they go through, the whole idea of showing, sewing the lips shut and, um, you know, the eyes and gluing the eyes down and all this. And 
just to try to hide the unpleasantness of what happens to a body after it's dead and when it's on display for the funeral, for the viewing. And the way that he is so matter-of-fact, Mr. Wallace is so matter-of-fact to come in. And what is he doing? Like using a staple gun or something to kind of uh, to, to shut the mouth and then also kind of give him a little bit of a smile as well. What's that? It's something to make him smile. It's a lot easier and a lot faster than sewing the lips together. And then also the whole idea of the, um, you know, packing all the holes, as he calls it. The uh, And then the, I love the way that, again, talk about economy to your point, Axel. The, the way that they're doing this whole embalming scene after a while you see the corpse at first and then after a while you don't see the corpse anymore and then it's all replaced by movement of the actors reactions from the actors and then sound effects so when he takes that trocar the so-called embalmer sword and shoves it into that body we don't get this the shot of that thing going into the body we just get the sound of it we get his motions and then to uh hear the noises that are coming as the uh the cavity is being aspirated Ooh, it is uh it's gruesome but it is gruesome just because we can imagine it rather than necessarily having uh lynn stopkowitz showing it to us so again i think that was a really smart way to go about things uh, i don't think it's um a matter of being um a smart way to go about it because it was probably if they would have tried to show you all that it would have blown the entire budget so it's <laughs> it's one of those things where you got no money so you got to do everything with sound and everything off camera so and I think it would have been a little too much for the audience. I, I think just having the sound and imagining it, ima- the imagination, we've talked about this before, Rob, that we can imagine things so much more gruesome than if we see them. Yeah, and not only that, but also her reaction shots to these things are key, you know, because ultimately mm-hmm. we're we're entering her world, we're observing her observing this for the first time, and I guess an equivalent would be to be vulgar, um, like maybe like a young boy going to a strip club for the first time, you know, like if, if dead people does it for you, watching an embalming session is probably the equivalent of seeing strippers or something. I was surprised that she was actually okay with it because it seemed like such a violation of the body. You know, she treats these dead bodies with such respect and then to see him doing this embalming, you'd think that she would, if she was going to run off screaming like uh, Carol did in the woods, you would think that she would run off in, uh, in disgust because of the way that Mr. Wallace is treating the body rather than it being too gross for her. I mean, he compliments her on not fainting and saying that that was a really good first step that she doesn't faint. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think that had she been upset it would have been like how dare you desecrate these things because she holds them so sacred so it's interesting that she is okay with the way that he's treating these bodies i was waiting for that moment especially considering uh, 96 is still pretty far removed from the publication of this book but there is a book you've probably heard of called jessica or that was written by jessica mitford the american way of death and it's this giant tell-all 
here's what's going on in funeral homes. Is this how you want your dead bodies to be taken care of? They're taking tons of money from you. And so there's this, this backlash about that. And I firmly expected that she was going to kind of become a mouthpiece for that in the scenes with the mortician saying, this is not the way we should do things. And when she didn't, it, it reminded me that, again, this isn't a story about politics. This is a personal story about her sort of enjoying the last moments of these men and their lives for what they were. And that's kind of a good place to, to go because talking about, um, someone who can control and enjoy those last moments versus the unpredictability of a traditional relationship. And this is where she goes to college and she meets Matt. And well, even before that, it, it's seeing the way that she, um, th- th- there's that moment where she goes through what I consider the world's longest, uh, car wash, <laughs> um, and uh, kisses the corpse. And to your point from earlier, Rob, the whole idea of the unpredictability of relationships and dealing with other people. I mean, when she makes love to this corpse, uh, I think it might be Tony or it might be a different one, that she's fully in charge and this whole thing is for her pleasure. And that seems really crucial to her character is just that she is... 100% protected from anything else. And then, uh, yeah, bringing Matt into the story, that is adding this wild variable to it. And I was surprised. Now, uh, for economical reasons, of course, we're going to get very into her story very quickly. I was surprised at how fast she opens up to Matt. Uh, I mean, she tells him within just a few minutes, not in, in, uh, in movie time, but in screen time, that that she is uh, makes love to these corpses, um, and then he is okay with it, and that was one of the biggest surprises. But of course, that's that's crucial to the story as well. But Matt, uh, played by who is it, Peter Outerbridge, he, he uh, he's a fascinating character to me because he, he just he looks kind of um, again kind of sickly and stuff, and he just has this real intensity to him when he is playing this role. And uh, it just gets more and more intense as the film goes on. His intensity may feel intense because he's probably the most average character in the film. And what I mean by that is everyone's really sedate. (laughs) And he just seems to me like a guy in his early 20s who's like, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. You know, kind of college kind of guy, you know. And that's how dudes in their early 20s are. So, um so you know she's so very sort of quiet and stayed and and everything like that that he seems outrageous <laughs> i make love to them really yeah um dead bodies You don't believe me, do you? I believe you. I've never told that to anyone. Men or women? Men. <laughs> Young men. Fresh corpse? Yes. 
you climb on top of them. Yeah. And, and then blood. Yeah, it, it, it's it's essential. You know, when you think about it, sperm propagates life. But blood sustains it. Blood is primary. Yes. Rob, to piggyback off your point, when I first saw this, I was in my 20s, and I kind of identified with him and his, his, like, his intensity for life and knowledge and to pursue this lady. And I watched it again now in my almost 40 with, with a child and a wife, and I, I was kind of creeped out by his intensity and thinking, was I ever really that young? <laughs> and of course yeah. I was, but it was terrifying. <laughs> but that I think really um really is what the film does for me. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, yeah, I sympathized with her. You know, I remember when the first time I saw it, like I understood where she was coming from, but at the same time the real tragedy I think is him. I I feel like here's a guy who you know, was so obsessed with this with this girl with this relationship and wanting to be what she wanted him, you know, which he felt she needed or she needed from him that he could never really give her in a way um, that it just kind of drives him crazy. Right. Yeah. Cause the rest of the film really is their relationship and the way that they kind of bounce back and forth because yeah, to, to put it bluntly, she can only have pleasure with the dead and by him being living, she is unsatisfied with their relationship and they make love for the first time. Uh, she says at one point, you know, I've never done this before. And it's true. She's never been with a real living person before. And after that first night, she is completely unsatisfied and goes back to the funeral home. And that's where she gets her satisfaction. If anything, that seems to be the most satisfaction that we see her getting. She is very, very pleased by that particular session with the corpse and it seems to be kind of a mix of the living and the dead at that point and then yeah from there on out it is matt being obsessed with her being curious about her and it's it's almost like he's it's almost like he's being cuckolded by corpses because there's one part where he's reading the obituaries and reading about these young men who have been killed and who were taken to her funeral home dean roderick english 30 on Tuesday, after a lengthy illness, body can be viewed 1 to 3 p.m. at the Wallace Funeral Home. The obituaries? Matt, what are you doing? Michael Gazettis, 35. Wednesday in his sleep. He's also at the Wallace Funeral Home. Now, did you sleep with these two guys? You know, I don't fuck everything that's dead. That's not what I meant. Is it... Is it the same with each of them? No. Everyone is different. It's like in life. Everybody is different. It's the same in death. How is it different? Each of them has its own wisdom, its, its own innocence, its happiness, its grief. I feel everything from the body, okay? I see it. You see it? It's like looking into the sun 
without going blind. I'm consumed. So am I, Sandra. To put it in you know living terms, just like here's a list of all of these guys. Have you been with these guys? And she's just kind of getting angry with him for for good reason. But that we kind of turn it on its head, and it's all of these young men who have died and have gone to her funeral home who are available to her. It, it just it's it's funny and it's sick and it's great all at the and same time. And I think he also reacts in a way that. At least I would say in, I don't know, maybe other media. I don't necessarily know if people do this in their private lives. It's almost like if someone were to stumble upon your porn stash and, you know, <laughs> like you're married to a woman who is of regular build, but you're watching a lot of stuff with women who have like, you know, big breasts. So like the wife's like, so you like big breasts, huh? Let me go get some fake ones for you or something like, you know, it's one of these kind of, right. I feel like I need to compensate because that's what you want. And, uh, it just becomes more like, it just gets more and more amped up. And of course, in this scenario, there's nowhere to go, but the final stop, which is, you know, I, I guess this mix of sort of beauty and tragedy all at the same time. I can't help but think that this would be an interesting pairing with a movie you did a couple months ago, Martyrs. Because in both cases, there's this desire for transfiguration and, like, the soul glows and, you know, like, we're seeing something different beyond that not everybody understands. But one's done much more realistically and personally while the other's done as a science fiction or a horror kind of over-the-top. Right. No, the her talking about that glow of the corpses and the way that we kind of have that mirroring of the glow that she's talking about also with that harsh overhead light from the uh, uh, embalming table. And I love that the, those moments when she looks up at that light and she's seeing that and then also mixing that with the whole light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing the light that we see when we die allegedly so it, it's great that they can bring all of those things together into those moments and then that um if you guys don't mind i want to talk about the end and just the way that she talks about how matt has made this sacrifice for her by making himself a corpse for her and she has the most satisfying moment with him and then every time she looks up into that light every time she sees the light she now sees him at the center of it and it's just it's it's amazing that this love story i mean so many love stories end in death and with tragedy but this one ends with death, but it is transformed into almost more of a victory for both of them, that she finally has the satisfaction with him that he had been craving, and that he is the, that, that uh, making love with him is the moment that she'll take with her for the rest of her and life. And that, from a visual standpoint, is, you know, and it's a very simple thing, but the use of the whiteouts in here, I think, is, uh, is yes. an excellent choice. Yeah, definitely. And the whole idea of, um, because like I said, at the beginning, we kind of get these moments, we get these real brief flashes. And then it's only later at the end of the film that we realize, as she's kind of describing what had happened, that we realize that she is 
basically taking care of his corpse after he hangs himself, kills himself, and then uh, makes love to him. Because there are moments at the beginning, when I rewatched it again yesterday, I was just like, wait, did she have sex with him afterward? And then, yep, sure enough. So when we get to the end, we see that, but I like that we get that tease at the beginning. I found the ending, both times I've seen the film, extremely upsetting because having been a younger guy at one point and knowing younger guys at that point, there is that that desperation to do something to prove your love to someone who's not accepting you. And so the moment where he does commit suicide, I, I felt like even though it works really nicely into her story, I, I can't help but feeling that, that from his perspective, he's not getting what he wants out of this because he's, you know, dead. I think that it's just a, a great little story um, that plays really well. Uh, beautifully done visually and and it gives you um, but what I always want in movies the one thing I always want in movies is an experience that I'm never going to have or an understanding of something that I'm not going to have so uh, I, I think it does that in in such a huge way for such a small film and and that's what makes it great for me I would add everything Rob's saying and I would kind of raise it to I can't believe how just solid and airtight this movie is for being you know, having some ideas that go out there for most audiences. It's a really well made movie. It's well filmed. It's incredibly well acted. It's a, you know short running time, so there's not a lot of filler in it, and you know it it's just really well done. And I think then when you come to that end punch, there's nothing to like buffer it for you and i think that's just brilliant i am the the director went on to do too much more which is too bad yeah she's been working fairly steadily since then but um it's uh i've seen some of her other stuff but nothing that really grabbed me as much as this one um but she is uh super nice and uh so I'm, i'm really excited for folks to hear the interview this is also the first time i saw molly parker in anything and she's, I think, one of the best actresses that we have right now. But every time I see her on whatever show, I remember Kiss. Kiss, to me, will always be her movie. Well, let's go take a break and listen to that interview. This is a group interview. It actually came out really well, though. Sometimes that can be a challenge here in the projection booth. Uh, director Lynn Stopkowicz, star Molly Parker, and cinematographer Gregory Middleton. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. 
it's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album, Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. when we were um, chatting online um, it's been a long time since we've made this film so yeah. uh, I don't know you know we're getting old and frail our minds are a little bit you know irregular well, I, no <laughs> it all came back to I watched it again last night and it all came back to me it was pretty funny well and I kind of like that it's all three of you so maybe you can kind of uh, you know add to each other's memories which is good True. We'll yeah. rewrite history. It'll be awesome. There you go. Yep. Alternative okay. facts. Yes, I, exactly. Bang on. So, uh, Lynn, I did want to start off with you, and I'm curious, how did you decide to get into filmmaking? Um, well, I when I was in elementary school, I had a teacher who got me involved in photography, um, and I was doing sort of multimedia work, and then he put a Super 8 camera in my hands, and I made a little animated film, and... I really love the experience, and by the time I hit college, I took a cinema class, and I didn't really understand, you know, film outside of the American system of, you know, what was possible or what kinds of stories were possible. And I remember seeing my first European film, which was a Fassbinder film, believe it or not, just <laughs> like inundation, um, and I it just kind of blew my mind and. Um, we were in that class asked to also make films and the camera, the super eight camera was once again in my hands and I suddenly, it all came back to me, just that the joy of it and the fun of it, the possibility of 
the kinds of stories that might be told. And um, that was it. I kind of just changed gears right then. I think I was like, I don't know, 18, 17 or 18. So yeah, film school. And then the big wide world. So you did some, did you do some shorts and stuff like that before you started working on the features? Or what was the path uh, basically before you got to Kissed? Yeah, basically I made a bunch of Super 8 movies and then I um, went to Concordia in Montreal and I made a bunch of um, short 16 millimeter films. Um, and when I got out of that program, which was a bachelor's degree, um, it was around the time when uh, Spike Lee and... Susan Seidelman and Jim Jarmusch and all those guys were making their films out of New York and some of them were making their films out of NYU. So I knew there was a grad program in film and I really wanted to make a feature film, but I really didn't have any connection that the whole professional world just seemed so far away. And I thought, well, I want to make a feature. I really enjoy school. So maybe I'll go into graduate program and make a feature film as a thesis project and go from there. So I ended up applying to a bunch of different places. I actually did apply to NYU and um, uh, Columbia, um, as well as Ryerson in Toronto and UBC in Vancouver. And um, I got accepted pretty much everywhere, but I decided to come out to UBC here in Vancouver because the program was self-directed. So of course it was, because it's the West Coast. <laughs> um, and it was interesting because when I applied to that program, they asked me to talk about what I thought my weaknesses were or what I thought um, I wanted to focus on as a filmmaker going forward. And so instead of being in the kind of rigorous academic program, it was much more about figuring out what you needed to do and then having designing the program around what you wanted to do. And that's really what I, that was really my intention because I really just wanted to make a feature you know, I got a really great education at Concordia in terms of film history and theory and aesthetics and all those things. But what I wanted to do is to have more of a hands-on experience. And um, so, yeah, I ended up coming out here. I also had gotten a scholarship um, out of Quebec um, because I was in a, I had a high grade point average. So instead of taking the money that I got for that scholarship and using it to go to school in the U.S., which would have been my tuition, I wanted to use that money as seed money to put towards this potential feature film that I was going to make. So by staying in Canada where the programs were a lot cheaper, it was also a possibility to bring me a little closer to being able to make a feature film. So that's kind of what happened. I came out here to Vancouver to go to UBC. I met a bunch of great filmmakers. They're all um, working in the industry. They're all indie film directors and producers and of course DPs. I mean, I met Greg um, at UBC. He was in the undergraduate program and Kiss was his first feature film as a, as a cinematographer. So it was kind of finding a real interesting community. And I just kind of fell into that world and that group of people at that particular time. So it was really kind of the zeitgeist um, that brought all those elements together for me. And, as for deciding to do this in Barbara Gowdy's book, what was it about that story that you liked that you know attracted you and said, hey, there, there could be a film here? Well, that's interesting because as I was saying earlier, I was trying to make a film as my thesis project and I had been struggling with trying to come up with a great idea for a feature and I had written a bunch of different 
feature scripts. And it was hilarious because, you know, the grad program is only a few years long. And I was taking forever to get through the program because I couldn't settle on a project. I really felt that the first time you make, it's like you only get one shot to make your first film. So I felt like it needed to be something really memorable. It had to be something that I was willing to devote two or three years of my life to and not get bored with. It had to be something that was challenging. And um, I was really struggling with the ideas that I had had up to that point. And just on a lark, I came across this short story by Barbara Gowdy, as you're saying, and I was just, I'd never read anything like it before. I'd never heard about a character like this before. Um, I had no idea what necrophilia was. It was just kind of, I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember reading the first page of that story and the hair at the back of my neck stood <laughs> out. I was like, what is this? But at the same time, I loved her. There was something about her voice and the way that that story was expressed in Barbara's words that I could relate to. So there was this real kind of um, push-pull for me as a reader reading it, where I was repelled by the idea of what she was doing, and yet I really kind of <coughs> had fallen in love with her. So I put the story down, and I was in the middle of trying to get this other project together. I was literally going to shoot, you know, in about three months. No, I think it was, when, when Kameen gave me the story, it was nine weeks. Okay, nine weeks. <laughs> when you say, gave me the short story, said, here's what I want to do. Right? Yeah, and right. even better. So I had a totally <laughs> different project I was going to do. Not at all what Kiss became. Um, but the thing was, is I couldn't get the story out of my mind. And it was driving me crazy because I was struggling and struggling with this project that I knew in my gut wasn't right. And I didn't know why it wasn't right. And it was just haunting me. You know, it's like, being in a bad relationship where you know you shouldn't be there, but you just don't know what to do and you just can't break up. It's just awful, right? And um, and I couldn't get the story out of my mind and it just hit me like a t- I just started thinking, but that's what you want for a film. You know, you want something that people can't forget, that people will always remember. So it's funny now, you know, it's like 20 years later and people even now who vaguely know about the film they go, oh, is that that movie with the girl who works in the funeral home? And she's like, I'm like, yeah, that's the one, right? Because people will remember, the, they just remember it because it's so singular. It's such a bizarre um, combination. So, so that's really how the genesis of that came together. It was really that I couldn't get the short story out of my mind. And then I just started writing it. Like I just literally... Before I even had the rights to it, I just said, okay, I'm just going to sit down just for the hell of it and figure out, well, if this was a film, what would the structure be? And I just started writing out, oh, it would start like this and then go here and go there and yak, yak, yak. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, this could be a film. And I talked to my boyfriend at the time who was the producer. <laughs> I said, hey, so I'm actually thinking this. <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. He, was, he thought I was crazy. So were you guys in prep already for like you were already sort of sort of we were this was like in the spring Mm -hmm. and we were supposed to start prepping in July and I was actually off in Toronto I was production design I used to do production design work on feature films I got into that and my boyfriend was a director as well as a producer and he was um, directing his second feature called the Michelle Apartments and I was in Toronto production designing it while all this was happening. Yeah. And, and I, I was the camera operator. And Greg was the camera operator. And 
I basically said, I think I need to do this. And he was, I was just going to take my salary from doing that show and put it into the movie. Um, you know, like all $10,000 or whatever it was, something really small. And he just said, well, maybe it was good that he was in the middle of making a movie so he couldn't talk me out of it. He was too busy. But he kind of said, well, if you really think this is what you want to do, now's the time to pull the plug on the other one. Like, you better get writing. You better get... And you better get the rights to it. You can't just take it. Like, you have to <laughs> talk it. And it sort of worked out because Barbara Gowdy was in Toronto. And so I wrote her a letter. Like, I literally wrote her a snail mail letter like <laughs> on a typewriter. You know, I, I just looked at the publisher on the book and sent it to the publisher. And it got to her. And she got in touch with me. And that's how it all just came together. It just started happening really quickly. What was that other film project, and did you ever get back to it, or was it just dead after you decided to do Kissed? We shall not speak of it. <laughs> um, no, it, it was a script that I'd been like trying to get made, and actually it's kind of funny when I think of it now, um, considering what's going on in the world. It was about a border guard, um, mm. a Canadian border guard. And actually, this is really weird, but Amanda Plummer had read the script, and she had committed to playing the part because I always thought she was a really interesting oh actor. Um, and Donnelly Rhodes, who's a Canadian actor, who was in a series called Soap uh, years and years and years ago, and then subsequently he was in a series here in Canada called Da Vinci's Inquest yeah. for many years. And then he was in Dallas or Glasgow, basically. So. There you go. He, I had a huge crush on him, and I wanted him to play the smuggler. So there was a Canadian smuggling dude who'd go back and forth over the cane border and this particular Canadian border, which was kind of in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. that everyone would just use as their smuggling point. Um, <laughs> and so the, anyway, it was kind of a comedy. There's, I'm trying to remember now the storyline, but anyway, she was shooting in Vancouver and she read it and loved it and wanted to do it. And so this was all happening. And do you know what? Well, I, I, we haven't even talked about, but you know, I just made, a film. I just made a short film, and Amanda's the lead in it. She is. <laughs> You're kidding. No. Wow. I mean, there's a love story on how it got to there, but you're kidding. No. She's so cool. She's amazing, and she's so. I must have stored that information wow. somewhere, like in the I'm way that. You. No, you did. Now that I'm hearing you, I'm having a. And it was going to be, it was going to be Elias Kateas, but then he couldn't do it. And then I changed it to a woman. Anyway, oh, cool. that's not really what we're talking about. But that's <laughs> Amanda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, yeah. hi. Hi, we're channeling. <laughs> we're touching crystals here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there you go. I, I know you talked about kind of your inner circle, uh, the reaction to, I'm going to do this story. Um, did you have any challenges as far as was your funding already in place? Was there any challenges as far as what you're going to, you're going to change it to this? Um, what funding? Yeah. What funding? <laughs> right. Um, right. I, I've never gotten funding. I mean, it's funny because people think I'm like this Canadian, you know, the Canadian independent director, you must've gotten all this money from the funding agencies. I never got money from the funding agencies, not even for my second film after kiss came out. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was, was weird. Didn't, didn't they put some money in the kiss at the very end, right? They, Just before, when it got into Cannes? They no, they didn't, actually. No? It was a, kind of an embarrassment. I got money from, we had already shot the movie, and BC Film, which was at that time a small provincial funding agency, kicked in money so we could blow the film up. Right. We shot in regular 16, 
we didn't shoot in Super 16. We no. shot regular 16 because this is all the cameras from the film school. And yeah. Just like, you know. And then they saw the film and it was accepted in the Toronto Film Festival. And they said, well, we're going to give you money so you can blow it up. So that was the money they gave us. It wasn't mm. and a little bit of completion money because we needed money to do a proper sound mix. So BC Film kicked in a bunch of money and they came in as an investor. It was one of the best investments ever made because because we sold the film, right? They actually yeah. But the other funding agency, Telefilm Canada, refused the film and they had seen the cut because they said it was too out there. They didn't think there was any hope in hell we'd ever get a distributed for the movie <laughs> that we'd never get into a film festival. And it was crazy. I was so mad because um, we had already gotten like, we had already organized a soundtrack album with network yeah. records. We had already gotten Sarah McLaughlin on board to do soundtracks. So we were pretty organized back in the day. This was prior to the internet and all yeah. that. And I felt like, well, it was exactly the kind of thing that they should have been supporting. Yeah. You they know, really like, and, and, it's I mean, so, thankfully, it got to eat a lot of crow when it got into Sundance and Cannes. Well, this is the thing. It went, yeah, it Cannes. So, do you really want to hear the dirt? No, no, you don't really want to hear the dirt. But yes, it, yes, we do. That's yeah. why we're here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's public knowledge, but basically, you know, after the film went to Cannes, during Cannes, we went to a dinner at Telefilm had at our in our honor and we're sitting at this big table <laughs> and i'm sitting at this big table and i've got now my agent familia morris sitting across from me and the head of telefilm canada sitting across from me and all that and he says to me so lynn we would love to give you i was so happy to have helped you make this film and we would love to help you make your next film and i looked at him i said well you didn't actually help me make this film and he sort of looked flabbergasted, and I said, no, you guys told me that it had no commercial potential, and <laughs> I should go away. And, um, and then, and I think I'd had some French red wine at this point, because <laughs> I was pissed off, and I basically said, and not only that, this dinner that you're funding, because we were so broke, like, when we got... When we went to Cannes, we all piled into, like, the one hotel room, you know, oh, yeah. like, the two hotel rooms with 10 people in it, because the crew wanted to come, all my friends wanted to come, you know, it was, that's the kind of film it was, everybody kind of pitched in, and I, and I realized at this dinner that they were holding on our behalf, I could have used the money <laughs> that they had were paying for this dinner, which was probably, like, 10 grand, easily, easily yeah. to either put into the movie or to put into another filmmaker's movie that was struggling in the way that we've yeah. been struggling to get the film made. So yeah, or to help finish a film, or to like finish, literally get yeah. to the finish line. Like, I mean, the struggle to finish kiss over time. Oh right? my it God. Like, it was like, you know, it was a long time. We were raising money in $500 and $1,000 increments <laughs> to get the film made finished. And it took me three years to finish the film. So I was really, you know, in that place of, you know, I just wanted to see films get made and not money being spent by bureaucrats sitting down mm-hmm. with, you know, yeah. big dinners and stuff like that. So there you go. There's that. <laughs> there was that moment. <laughs> like the punk rock era, 1997. Yeah, the post-punk thing, yeah. I, I had one of those experiences with a film that I did that we went to Cannes and stayed in a one-bedroom apartment with, like, 12 people. <laughs> so, I know, yeah. so I know what you mean. <laughs> Was it kind of like a grandmother apartment with doilies everywhere? Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I just remember sleeping under the di- under the dining table at one point, and it was in, it was like forget yeah. it. Like I was up for like three days straight because it was impossible to get any sleep. People were in and out all hours of the day and night, so forget it. 
pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you wouldn't trade it for anything, right? There's no way you wouldn't go. I mean, there's no way you would, as a filmmaker, be prevented from going. You even have to pay your own way, which, I mean, we all did anyway. So you're not going to miss that, so... Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was a great experience. But uh, talking about the road to get there, I mean, um, how long did you have to shoot it? And then you talked about it taking you three years to get there. I mean, when you added up all the receipts in the end, what did the thing ended up costing you, if you can say? Okay, well, it, we, like, considering schedules nowadays and the television movies I shoot in, like, you know, 15 days or whatever it is, I feel now like it was a really generous schedule, but we really didn't know what we were doing, and our, we were moving so. longer. We were really moving slowly, yeah. you know. We didn't. Greg had crew who didn't know how to open the C stand up. It was like insane. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was a tiny little. So no. It was twenty four days, and it was twenty four days. Yeah. But initially, then we, initially, and then we shot an extra five days where we. I needed some extra material, and. Um, Sprinkled over two years. Sprinkled over two years. <laughs> but can I say, those 24 days, some of them were 22 hours long. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like it was like a union show. No. So we were just like a bunch of kids. And I remember we shot one day. I know. With, with Peter the, the and I, chef, like, chef. Yes. <laughs> and it was literally like hour 21. And you'd have to, like, go wake up a grip yeah. to get yeah, something to happen. Yeah. I remember that. You can't I, do that anymore. No one knows no. to do that. No. And I also remember, and this is really funny, because Molly's in town right now working on Lots in Space. Um, so luckily that's why we could, you know, include her in this conversation. But it's kind of funny because the location manager on her show was my location manager on our, on KISSED. And he was also my first AD because everyone was <laughs> doing multiple jobs. And on one of the days when we were shooting the scene in the morgue where you know she gets on there um, it was basically I was shooting so long that I had to close the door to like we locked the door of the set because the AD my aesthetic <laughs> who was freaking out was banging on the door and it was Greg and me and Molly and I think it was Raul who was playing the, the dead yeah, guy yeah. and Brian Pearson who's now on cinematographer himself, he was a camera operator, and we were in the room, and we just kept going. Like, we were just not, you know, we just kept shooting, and the crew was sitting in another room, you know, I don't know, playing board games or whatever, just waiting for us, and we just kept going. Have a nap. Yeah. Michael Gazettis was also the only one with a cell phone, and it was, like, as big as Oh, yeah, it was a big brick, case. right? It was... It was the one phone. It was like well, 1994, right? It was 1994, <laughs> like, it was like... Took two hands and a big man to list it. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, 24-hour days, and then you were asking what it cost. Um, so we got it in the can for, I think it was like $40,000, but I didn't have rushes. There was no video monitor or anything. No. None of that existed, right? So, basically, we shot in 16... I, we, just, we just did rushes for the first uh, day, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, camera test kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't afford to process the yeah. film. Remember, so remember the, the, the scene of her at the desk with the butterflies behind her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were in the mouse looking scene. You're like, yeah. why did we have to right. start with this scene? But anyway, so no rushes, no monitor. So we didn't know what we were getting. We had like 10 focus pullers because we weren't paying people really. And it was just anyway. But the point is, is that I got the rushes. I went off and did another show as a production designer. I took my salary. I sent the footage to the National Film Board. But they had a program at that time where if you pay for the print, 
that they would do the lab work for you. So they processed all our rushes. And then we all went back out to UBC and sat in the projection room and literally watched reel after reel yeah. after reel of the That's movie funny, yeah. all at once. And yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it was like 40 grand to get in a can and then dribbling out over a number of years. I think finally when, by the time we got it to the Toronto festival, um, you know, with the blow up and everything, it was probably like a hundred or 150, something like that. Canadian. Canadian. So like two cents. No. Uh, so seventy five thousand. No. Um, yeah. And that was nineteen ninety six. Yeah. Yeah. So Molly, what did you think when you first heard about the project and were offered the part? Well, I had done I, I found out about it because Greg uh had I had made a short I had made a short film. I was in a short film that Greg um uh was a cinematographer on and we've done it that year, I yeah, guess. it was earlier that year. Was it in the winter or spring? No, yeah, the winter, I think. I don't remember. I remember so little, but the, but I know we did that thing, and and so so I had met Greg then, and um, and he called me and said, "I'm doing this project with this woman, and there's this. Re- it's really weird, and I can't tell you what it's about. Yeah. But you should <laughs> you should read the script because it's a great part for you." So I went. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Yeah. You're not going to read this again. And I, so it was very mysterious. And I, I think I went to the production office maybe and got a script, came and got a script. And and I just, you know, to that point I had done, I had done a little bit of work, not very much. And most of it on, you know, American sort of TV and movies of the week, sort of service stuff that was shooting up here. And I, I didn't really like it. I mean, I was really bored and I really, I remember thinking like, well, if this is it, then I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to university and do something else. And, um, and so Kiss was the first, it, at that point it was called, um, it wasn't called Kiss. It was, we so we yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cause that was the name of the short story. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, um, I had just, you know, beyond this thing of her being a necrophile, what, what, stood out for me was it was just the first thing I ever read of a it was a character she wasn't somebody's girlfriend she wasn't somebody's daughter she was this young woman in her own right um struggling with her own sexual identity and uh it was so exciting I was so excited to read something that felt sort of scary and um alien and unknown and and mostly that there was this young woman at the center of it who I could identify with even though like her circumstances were completely completely different to mine so I don't ever I mean much later people would say like wow it's so brave of you to do that (laughs) and I remember thinking what are you talking about that was such a great part you know and then when I met I auditioned um uh, we had a casting director uh, who's gone off to do a lot of really um, great big stuff, and uh, Wendy O'Brien, and then and she brought me in, and I auditioned, and then I think I did a callback. But what I really, I, what I, I don't remember a lot about that. What I remember is sitting with Lynn, maybe after I got the job, I can't remember, and talking about the character and talking about the story, and it was the first time I ever worked with a director who asked me what I thought, who asked me what I, why I thought she did things or, you know, that, that there was a, a creative collaboration as opposed to, you know, 
you stand here, you say these lines, you wear these clothes. And that was, it was really just the most exciting thing that had happened to me creatively. And it, it actually is really what made me want to be an actor. I mean, I, I loved acting before that, but I didn't actually understand how you could do it for your life. And I sometimes still don't, even though I've been doing it for 25 years now. But, um, but suddenly it was like, oh, but you could be uh, an artist. You could do things. You know, there, there was just, I met all these people who were making films and who cared about the same things that I cared about. Can I add something to that? So my recollection of that was I had had asked people to sign confidentiality statements when they were coming on to the show. Yeah, because there was total paranoia about paranoia the about the content out. because we thought if people knew about it, we'd be shut down, that we would be kicked out of the building we were in where we were kind of um, squatting anyway <laughs> as a like studio. Um, we didn't want the BC Film Commission to know we were making the movie because we thought at, that they wouldn't let actors be in our film. We started getting phone calls from people, because we have kids in the film too, like, oh my God, you're making a porn film. and porn oh, with dead like bodies. This is like a snuff film and all that. And I was like, okay, we got to kibosh that. Let's just get everyone to just not talk about it. And so I remember Molly coming because I wanted... The original short story, she's the character's supposed to be like, yeah, like she's a, described as blonde like and Marilyn Monroe, right? and like yeah. and Doris Day. Yes, she's right. supposed to look like Doris Day. Because um, I remember, because when I called Molly, I was like, hey, you're absolutely nothing like what you're uh, like, but you got to read it. we got to meet Lynn. So here's <laughs> the reason you called her. I didn't have the lead actor, yeah. and we were a few days away from shooting. And it's a weird thing because we, I had cast, I had looked, I was trying to find the, the young yeah. girl to play the younger you know, Sandra Larson, the character Sandra Larson. And of course, no parents are bringing their kids in and four, <laughs> so four parents bring their kids in. And one of them was Natasha Morley, when we ended up casting. The second girl was the girl we cast um, as her friend. Yes. And then two other kids who were completely inappropriate. <laughs> it was like, really, I didn't have a lot of cho- a choice there, but they were, and then they were amazing, right? Um, but I didn't have the lead cast and I was freaking out. And I remember sitting with Greg and we're like, like, How like are, what are we going to do? It's like I, the only pole holding up the tent. And, and I'm like, like what are we gonna do? and I had actually done, I had actually seen a bunch of um, Vancouver actors by this point, but it, it was that same thing in my gut. It was that same thing where I felt like I haven't found her. It's not her. It's not her. And so it was really funny. Molly, I remember in my recollection, he gave me the script because he just thought it was cool. And I think he said maybe, you know, she might be. But I remember when you came into the office and you said, and we just met. She hadn't even read the script yet. And I just met her. Just like, I hadn't, wasn't even thinking of her as an actor or an actor who might be in the film. We just met. And she said to me, oh, my God, you're a woman, like a woman director. A woman director. <laughs> I was like, she was staring at me like, what? <laughs> How could this be? And I remember we just hit it off just as people like it was like I could talk to her like my best friend immediately there was just as she's so easy to talk to she's so it's it was just automatic I felt like I had known her a long time just you know you get that feeling with someone so anyway but I'm still not putting it together okay duh and she says oh do you think I could Greg said you're making this really weird film and it's really oh hush hush could I read the script and I say sure so she, I give it to her, and I go, okay, well, you got to sign this agreement. <laughs> and then she okay. goes, and I, what I recall is she went out, 
And then I'm still, we're still freaking out about, you know, we don't have locations. We can't tell anybody what movie we're really making because they won't let us shoot there. And there was a lot of time pressure because the school's equipment was only available up to a certain point in the end of the summer before the, the semester started again. So we had the time yeah, was like, so I had to finish shooting before you could get the camera back. Yeah, I couldn't, I, we couldn't push the shoot. We couldn't anything because number one, the university was going to kick me out because I'd been there too long. <laughs> I only had the gear up to a certain date, blah, 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 all this stuff. Oh, and the rights for Barbara Gowdy, she was just really smart. She gave me a really short window. Like you have to shoot it. You have to start shooting by the end of September or else the rights, uh-huh. you don't have the rights anymore. And I was like, oh my God. So there was no pressure. But um, Molly, I remember I was having these meetings and et cetera, et cetera, with my crew, which are now like all my best friends of 20 years. And all of a sudden she's back. Like it was literally, I don't know, half an hour later. It felt like half an hour later. She was like, I read it. She had a look on her face. And I'm like, what? Like, oh my God. I read, I read the script. Can I talk to you about it? And I said, sure. And then she looked at me and she's like, oh, she's so this and she's so that. And she was so excited. And then she looked at me and she said, have you found her yet? And I said, no. And then you said, can I read for her? And I remember this feeling inside thinking, but you're not right. (laughs) (laughs) Your boobs are too small. You're not Dorothy Day or whatever, right? Like I just had this, I couldn't get out of my own head. And it was so funny because... That's how it happened. She asked if she could read for it, and I said, sure. And that's, you know, that's we just went down that road. That's hilarious. And it was funny because I really struggled with it because I loved her, and I thought she was a fine actor. I just was, yeah, I well, couldn't yeah, let go of the other idea. I had, yeah, the, I couldn't let go of the other idea. So in the sub, near subsequent to that, ironically, I've ended up teaching, directing at UBC to students. And it's so funny, some of the things that I tell them are just things from my own experience that, you know, sometimes you just have to step back Like you're so inside of it that maybe if you just step back a bit, you'll see the, you'll see the thing right in front of you. You know what I mean? It's classic. It's a classic thing in our lives, right? Where you can't see the forest or the trees. Um, but I remember Greg and I was, and I was still kind of like, you know, just ripping my hair out over this. Didn't, I couldn't. I didn't know what to do. And I remember you just said to me, well, just trust your gut. At the end of the day, when we're on set at hour 22 or whatever, (laughs) or you're asking this person to do these things on camera, who are you going, who will you be able to communicate with? Who will you trust? Who will you, who do you feel? And I'm like, well, it's Molly. Yeah. There's just no question. And you're like, there you go. And then I, and, then that's, and that's exactly what you said. Well, there you go. Decision made. And I'm like, okay, well then let's move forward. And yeah. then it just all of a sudden hit me. And I'm like, oh, well, there's Natasha. And she looks just like her. And it's yeah. fantastic. And let's just do that. And Well, because you also had, like, as a, as a filmmaker, as I remember, I remember the conversation, because you had a lot of, a significant amount of anxiety over just also what you're asking a performer to do in the oh, film. Oh, like, yeah. how, how, how the film might be perceived. And all the things that are going to be baggage to this part is a brave and challenging part but you were you were especially protective of not just how we treated the sexuality and the nudity and the obsession visually but also like this person is going to be forever associated with this is a it's a it's a big commitment from you you're you're really mindful of that i think that's yeah. what was a big part of your anxiety but then like that was also why like who do you like who who do you feel comfortable with who can you who just came who here you walk said, out i'll do it <laughs> sounds great i don't care who's I'll the person gonna, gonna, yeah who's who can who can i tell my deep darker secrets to in the moment i met this person oh molly okay good that sounds good yeah then. yeah no i mean it was I, pretty amazing i mean we did have a kind of yeah remarkable 
connection. Yeah, yeah. It was like a Vulcan mind melt. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, yeah. And it still is. It's so funny. Yeah. Even when I don't see you for so long, it's just like, <laughs> anyway, so there's the, yeah. Did we answer every little question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but Molly, I'm curious, how did you decide to kind of approach the character when it came to this? God, I don't even know. I mean, it's not as though I had, I mean, I had studied as an actor, but it wasn't, I didn't have an approach. You know, it wasn't like, well, I'm going to do it this way. We just did it. I mean, it was so, we were shooting almost right away. Lynn and I talked a lot, all the time, about um, what, she, what, what her deal was. And I think that, you know, a lot of it sort of, um, it's not that I didn't make choices, and certainly Lynn had, I mean, Lynn really directed me, you know, it was, a, she really had a very clear vision of the story she wanted to tell and the way that she wanted it to look. And it's very strange when I watch it now, it's just, I mean, I, I had no idea it was a comedy <laughs> until, until I saw it like 15 years later. I was like, well, that's it's hilarious, really it's funny, really but. funny, but it didn't feel like that at the time. It felt, even though we laughed all the time and then has a wicked sense of humor, it felt... So deadly serious. Deadly serious. <laughs> I know, earnest. <laughs> earnest, and it's just probably what makes it funny. I was, it yeah. was just, I mean, there's, you know, I, I, I was fully immersed in it. When um, Lynn cast me in the film, I... I sort of simultaneously had ended up with nowhere to live because I was like moving out of this house. I lived in with a friend. I was supposed to move in with my boyfriend, but then he like disappeared for three weeks or something. So I was sort of homeless and I came to this, to this, um, sounds worse than it is, but I really didn't, I really didn't have anywhere to live. And I, I came, I knew they were having a production meeting at this like weird old office building studio where oh, they, God, where yeah. they had, set up shop and I like showed up and I was like hey so I don't really have anywhere to stay and and um and they built me a bedroom in the office building this like location manager slash ad slash cell phone haver and every other thing like the, and the art department just kind of like gave me a nice big shag rug and I caught on the floor and a massive ashtray because I smoked like a fiend and and I lived there. So I, so not only like were we making this movie in this building, I was living there. Lynn had cast an actor from Toronto, Peter Atterbridge, who had come out. And so he, he was living there too. They, that's like where we lived. So we would literally wake up in the morning, kind of roll into hair and makeup, which was kind of just in all in the same room, and then start <laughs> shooting. And that's also why we could shoot for 22 hours. Yeah, because all we like we built like half the movies shot in that. Yeah. Building. Like a funeral home interior, Matt's apartment. Yeah. The 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 um the autopsy room. I didn't tell you they were all the room. room. They were all the same yeah, room. So basically, <laughs> in this building. So my producer, his one of his frat brothers, was became a real estate agent, and we couldn't find anywhere to have as an office or a. Studio. Yeah, for nothing. For nothing, because we had no money. And he said, okay, well, I've got this building, it's for sale. And the deal is this. If I get a buyer for the, for the building, you guys got to be out in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, we'll do it. 
so we all moved in there and Molly was living there and Peter was living there and Michael, the first DD, ended up building Molly like a shower yeah. in a bathroom, <laughs> like with this like plastic and a hose and stuff. And I'm, I'm laughing because as I say, he's on lots of space with her now and I'm like, restrain yourself from building her a shower. Um, but it was kind of like it was it just, was the most fun ever it was it crazy was so we, fun. we just all hung out and so we'd shoot so the uh, math apartment set um i had some friends who were scenic painters and they came in and made it look like wood paneling and all that stuff but if you look at the film really closely you'll see this the windows that she yeah. comes and knocks on the windows it's the same window that she crawls through in the in the embalming room and those scenes are back to back so she, she when she comes to see matt knocks on the window and then when she leaves later she climbs in the same window, the same window. At the, at <laughs> but, the but we but we repainted so basically what happened is we did this huge we did a set and you know, you know my background in production design and set dressing and all that stuff i had great friends so they came in and did all that and then we'd go out on location for like a week or a couple of days. Couple of days. And then we come yeah. back and suddenly it's now the embalming room because we could not shoot in a funeral home. No. And what funeral home is going to let the necrophile no. movie in, right? <laughs> and it just couldn't happen. So we had to build it. And we just kept turning that office building over into these major sets that we just couldn't get anywhere else, um, which is just crazy. It was, it was kind of nutty. Yeah, a lot of fun. But it was a great lesson in like reusing stuff because, you know, uh, as, as as you know, in production, we do that stuff all the time now yeah. in everything, no matter how big a show is, you repurpose stuff. And mm-hmm. even on Game of Thrones, I've turned like corners of other rooms into different rooms, right? Mm-hmm. For one scene and to do it back in the first film. And yeah. it works. It's amazing. The, just to go back to, quickly to your question about how I approached the part, I, I was thinking while we were talking about that time, that one of the things I think that was really clear to me from the beginning, but it was also... Um, I think that Lynn and I both approached her obsession from the point of view of this desire to achieve transcendence. Like it, there was almost this religiosity in it. There was a kind and it was all about ritual. And so it felt, it always felt like it had to me, like a, it was about a woman who was, you know, just trying to transcend. Like she was trying to move on to this other plane and that the sexuality part of it, was a was a vehicle for that. It wasn't the thing in and of itself. And I think because of that, you know, we were able to steer away from it. That's just not what the story the story was. So even though they were, even though this girl was a necrophile, it seemed like, yeah, but yeah, but it wasn't about that. it wasn't about a perversion. Yeah, it, was about a... it didn't seem like perverted to us. <laughs> I was I was thought it kind of odd that you know it is people weird. thought it was freaky because it. But they don't. But they, they, did. But they don't want to see it though. They people did it right. This yeah. is the way because. I don't know if you guys remember this, but my, I had this trauma through the whole making a movie and post where I didn't want to tell my parents what the movie was about. Because <laughs> their image... My 10-year-old son sells stairs. And her five Don't introduce them to it. <laughs> what are you guys talking about up there? Oh, you know, this movie made back in... Yeah. It must be a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't want to, I didn't want to tell them about it because I thought, you know, their image of me as their sweet daughter was going to be shattered because even if I... Just the fact that I'd have to say, you know, it's based on a short story. It's not like it's my own life experience here. But I remember my parents finally needing to see the film because it wasn't going to be in the Toronto Film Festival. And I finally said, okay, this is what the movie's about. And I know this is going to be a question that you ask a little later, and I'll tell you the full story there. But it was just weird to me that they went in with all this trepidation. And then when they came out, I remember my parents coming out of the theater that first screening in Toronto, and I was 
mostly the thing I was most worried about was how did, would Barbara Gowdy feel about it, the author of the short story, and my parents. They were the most important people to me. And Barbara came out, and she was all smiles. And my parents came out. My mother was, like, weeping. And she comes up to me, and she grabs my arm. She goes, she's so lovely. Oh, I love, I love her. She, I think she's lovely. And, and I was thinking, oh, my God, wow. Okay, right. I've done it. We've done it because if my mom can get down with necrophilia, <laughs> this is actually, it, it shows you how powerful film is and, you know, what, how manipulative it can be emotionally and how fun and interesting and what a journey it can be, how you can really kind of um, change someone's mind or preconception or open up their experience. And it was such a, was such a powerful lesson in a way as a filmmaker to, to see that, to, to see that that could happen. I, I was kind of flabbergasted. Now, did you stick strictly to Barbara Gowdy's story or did you do any research on the person that the story was based on, uh, Karen Greenlee? Um, well, I knew about the Karen Greenlee story because um, I had read it in a book uh, called Apocalypse Culture like a number of years earlier. But uh-huh. it's weird because I read about her before I read the short story and years earlier. And it also gave me that freaky feeling, like, <laughs> not in a good way. Um, <laughs> it freaked me out. But I never thought of it as, oh, this is a really interesting, you know, I would really love to make a movie about this just having read about the actual woman, um, it was Barbara's, it was like Barbara taking that information and then turning it into the short story. So I asked Barbara, you know, when I was talking to her about the project, is this based on uh, Karen Greenlee? And she said, absolutely. Um, But it was just like, she said, I read the article and then I just kind of used it as an inspiration to jump off and create Sandra Larson and create her character. So, so in terms of the story, you know, the researching of the story, I mean, at that time, again, the internet didn't exist, right? So there was no, like, just goo up necrophilia and suddenly you're talking to all these people who have, like, their, you know, the internet, their Reddit. Their oh, Reddit. Oh, oh, there was, God. There was, it, didn't, there was, it didn't exist. So no email. Where was I going to find out information? So where I found information was at the public library. <laughs> so, like, I was down. Seriously, I went down to the library, and then the only thing I could find were medical texts talking about deviancy or fetishes. And there might be, like, there would be one paragraph about necrophilia or that kind of thing. But there was really no information out there all I had was that Greenlee article Barbara's story and in fact ultimately it didn't really matter because and you know just sort of harkening back to your question about to Molly about creating that character the the goal really I think was to make her understandable and um empath- that the audience could empathize or relate to this character so I didn't really want to um, get into the necrophilia. I know it sounds crazy because that's what she does, but I really wanted to focus on her as a young woman grappling with all the things like identity and um, self-awareness. And so those are the things I could understand. Those are the things I could relate to. And those are the things that we tried to bring to the fore so that that would be the thing that you could relate to with that character. So in all ways, we tried to do that in terms of how the story was structured. Like, so to me, it was kind of like 
okay, so she falls in love with dead guys, but if you replace dead guys with, you know, Sean Cassidy or whatever, like from my era, then I could relate to that. Right? Like, mm-hmm. so she's, she's, this is what, so... A good example of that, I remember we were on set one day and we were trying to figure out the scene where she has to, she picks up the dead, one of the dead guy's arms and is like rubbing it on herself. Mm-hmm. And in the script, there are all these hilarious passages that I had written where I'd say something like, she goes in and makes love to the dead man. <laughs> There's no description, right? And Molly would say to me, so Lenny, um, what's, what are we going to do with this exactly? I mean, we'd have to f- sort of figure it out. I remember one day we were on set and she's supposed to per the script pick up his arm and then rub it on her on her neck like she did when she was a kid yeah. mm-hmm. and so molly's trying to figure it out she goes so lynn do you want me to do it like this and i'm like i'm not sure so the actor who's playing the dead guy and i said pardon me could we use your arm <laughs> and he said sure so all around us they're setting up the set and there's people working all around us and everything. so molly's on one side of the gurney and i'm on the other and she's got his one arm and she's kind of rubbing it on her <laughs> neck and, I, and i've got his other arm and i'm kind of rubbing on myself and i'm like she's like would you do it like this and i'm like i don't know i'm kind of thinking i would do it like this <laughs> You know, and I'm kind of rubbing it, and we're both rubbing and talking, and we're kind of eyes are rolling back in our head. I don't know. And all of a sudden, I notice it's really quiet. And I look around, and people are like, just deer in headlights. They're watching the two of us and going, what are they doing? What is and going on? this is really weird and quite disturbing, you know? So there, was those, there were those moments of she's a regular girl, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wow, I have no idea how this is going to go because at the end of the day, she is a necrophile. And when the film comes out, you know, is it going to be banned? Is it, you know, will it be able to be screened anywhere? You know, there's rules and and classifications and all those kinds of things for films where you can't get a film screened, right? Because you can't get a rating for it and all those things. And I was thinking, oh my God, what if it can never even get into a film festival? What if this, what if that? But in the moment, I just thought, screw it. Let's just... I just, I, I was kind of obsessed with it. I was obsessed in the way that the character was obsessed. I was obsessed with the character, with the making of the film. Obsession's a good word and, for all concerned. Yeah, <laughs> and we were, it was just like, it was kind of being, it was like being, um, yeah, radically in love or something. I don't know how to explain it. Anyway, I know I veered off there. I really <laughs> No, no, it's great. You know, one of the things that I really liked uh, in, in your stories was, you know, the, uh, the the room that you, you know, kept dressing in different manners and, and working in the place where it's like, all right, but if we sell it, you got to be out in 24 hours. So I was going to ask, uh, Greg, for you, this was one of the first films that you were DP on, and you talked a little bit about that, but I was wondering what your challenges were. Obviously, shooting 16, you didn't have a tap. You couldn't go back and look to make sure you had everything the way you did it. So what do you remember about the challenges of that shoot that, uh, you know, good, bad, uh, maybe it's funny today, but it wasn't funny then? Oh, God. Uh, well, it's always funny in some ways. Um well, yeah, this was the first. This was the first uh, uh, feature-length film that I DP'd. I'd been out of school for about five years, and as Lynn said, like when she approached me about it, because we'd known each other since all through university, <clears throat> I was working as a camera operator. I'd done a few small films. I had just uh, this is '94, so I just got in the union, I think, the year before. So, and I shot a bunch of short films and stuff. So, I, like, I had a you know reasonable idea of what I would do with a small film. But uh, I was, like, anxious, like, as she was to, like, you know, get a first crack at the can to do something, help make something from scratch, like a whole story, because that's what I was really loved about it when I got into it. And 
So, yeah, I mean, the irony was that we had all the usual problems with small film, right? Not not enough money, time, or everything else, but uh, we just spent all our time trying to figure out how to make it as unique as possible and figure out what the uh, just what the approach should be, because everything what Lynn was saying about the sort of emotional approach of the character with obsession and identity and everything else, and sort of try and view all the scenes like through her eyes a bit, and, and not make it a you know not make it a grotesque you know expose of that, but make it um, you know, make it more through her uh, vision of these things. And a lot of that was inspired by some of the text and stuff in the story and also the script. But I think, I mean, the, the usual challenges were everything. It was just, I mean, we had a rotating crew. I had a couple, couple of diehards that stick with us the whole time, like um, the gaffer, uh, John McIntosh, and uh, my friend Brian Pearson, who would, we'd alternate between me operating and him focus pulling or him operating and just a focus puller. I would just call in every favor, every person I worked with, and, hey, can you come out on Sunday, Saturday? for like 12 hours and then they would leave and then I'd take over and then Brian would pull, we just keep rotating through to do that. So there's a lot of scheduling for that, but the, um, the photography itself, yeah, shooting regular 16 was the only option we had. So just from a photographic standpoint, the, uh, thing was, I tried these really slow films, you know, to help make a blow up look good. So to grab a little bit less, less grain. So we used, we, uh, used Fujifilm, which was the cheapest. They got a great deal. So they were very supportive of small filmmakers. I mean, Kodak was still the main, the main source of film for most productions in town. And that at that time, that summer, it was at the time was one of the busiest times I'd ever been in Vancouver with about 30 productions shooting. So it was actually kind of a terrible time trying to make a move for nothing because, you know, everybody's working and locations are busy and getting free things difficult. So we had all those types of problems. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what that's the main questions, but the usual, I mean, it was kind of a, for me, it was like a, the whole thing was a seminal experience from everything that Molly and Lynn were just talking about but just being obsessed with it, getting your first chance to make something from mm. scratch and sort of winging it a bit. Like I had enough experience to have some idea uh, of how to do certain things and some idea of taste, but it was, uh, the whole film was like a constant experiment of how to do it, how to achieve what we wanted and how to, to bend what we had to our will. And, and a great lesson in, in economy, like how you tell a story when you don't, you don't need a lot of stuff, right? The film is very economical. Anyway, I just watched it again last night terms of close-ups and what happens when a, when a story and what is used, how it's communicated, you know, through performance. And, you know, there's not a lot of like establishing shots for no reason. There's no, there's a rhythm to the cutting and the storytelling, which is very emotional, which makes sense. And those are all, some of those economies come from the fact that you just didn't have the time. So you figure out, well, how do I tell the story of what I have? And that actually ends up being like a great lesson in filmmaking always is like sometimes less is more. You can to overdo it sometimes so often. I know that this was a low-budget film, but I'm curious, was there anything shot? Were there scenes that were shot that weren't eventually used in the final product? Oh, I think a few, yeah. <laughs> lots. Yeah, lots, actually. But the reason why is not because I didn't want them in the movie. It was because they were out of focus. <laughs> we had a lot of, I mean, almost everybody who worked on the show were you know, students from UBC or volunteers yeah. or a lot of people had never even worked on a movie before. Mm-hmm. It was really ad hoc. And some days we had, you know, uh, eight or 10 people and some days we had 30. We just really didn't know yeah. who was going to show up. It was kind of, it was really kind of like that. It was a full adventure. And of course, we weren't getting any dailies. So like later, we're like, oh, wow, that's that, that one shot in that scene. That's kind of a problem. Oh, well, <laughs> like, yeah. so, can I go back to that again? So when we watched the film and I cut it to cut together what was in focus, um, oh, you know, it was, there, there most was, of it was in focus. There, most of it was, most of it was, I know, but I still like, oh, oh my God, it's all of that stuff we shot that we couldn't use. 
but ultimately, so when we cut it together, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. I could just put those things together. And we ended up shooting some extra little bits to make some of those transitions work. But um, yeah, there were some scenes. And in fact, it was actually, it worked out really well that I didn't use those scenes because they were scenes that had to do with her and her relationship with her parents right. and things back at the house. And yeah. in fact, in retrospect, it's good that I don't have those because what it does what I didn't want to do with the film was to create this whole, you know, oh, she's like this because her parents were like that, right. you know, yeah. like that she's had some childhood. Yeah. Like, because everyone wants to figure out, why would someone do this? This is the yeah. burning question for people. What can I blame it on? Yeah, what, why is she <laughs> so, yeah, where's the trauma? Why is she so weird? Where did this thing happen? And by not having it in the film, it forces you to kind of have to just focus on what you have in front of you. And she's it. Like she's yeah. the protagonist, you know, it's the same device. I mean, I love, um, I don't know if you've heard of the author, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote um, Carol that was made a few years ago. Um, right. And all the Ripley. Did, yeah. All the Ripley strangers on a train. And one of the things that she's really famous for is making the criminal or the deviant or the psychotic, the main character. So when you're reading the book, you're forced to relate to the main character who is the person who's, you know, the perpetrator and it gets you inside their head. And it's a really disturbing and interesting place to be because it makes you realize, wow, I can kind of understand a little bit more about how people could get there. And so by not having those scenes, really focusing on it kept the perspective with her yeah. instead of other people's view of her which would have changed the whole exactly so in retrospect kind of i mean it's funny watching the film now with all my subsequent life and film experience it's like watching a movie i was saying to greg this morning when we were coming here it was like i watched it last spring in the theater there was a bc film retrospective and they screened it and it was weird. It was like watching a movie made by someone I know really, really well, but not me. Mm-hmm. And I laughed a lot. In, in oh, the yeah, I, I was people, howling last night. It was weird because no one else in the theater was laughing. But <laughs> I was in hysterics. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. It's so funny. Because it's quite funny. But um, it was really interesting because I can see now, because of what I know now about story and character and, and filmmaking, um, I can see why certain things work and I didn't understand why I was doing them at the time, but it comes back to that thing. I think I spoke of earlier, which is just your gut, like trusting your gut. And it's the thing that I struggle with even now as a filmmaker, as a TV director, basically is really trying to shut the voices around you. There's a lot of people on set. There's a lot of people telling you, you got to get this in this much time and this and this and this. And I always know when something's not quite right. I feel it. And, you know, when I fight for something, I can't necessarily always articulate why I need to fight for it. Sometimes it only becomes evident later in the cutting room. You know, I wish I had the ability to be able to say, always be like, I'm much better at articulating why I don't think it's working. But sometimes it's just your gut. And I've never regretted trusting my gut. I've always regretted sitting in the cutting room and yeah. seeing something where I caved in or I, mm-hmm. or I felt, mm-hmm. you know, and I yeah. went with a different direction and I see it and it's wrong and I know it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay. So it kind of makes you, it, it sort of reinforces that you have instincts as a filmmaker or as an artist or whatever, and that it's okay to yeah. trust them. 
you know, it works. Yeah, you have to be able to learn, learn to listen to your own response. Yeah. Right. You have to like tune everything else out and do that. Yeah. But that's also, I think that's, I mean, just to go back to the, what you asked me before, I mean, cause I think the biggest lesson for me, not the biggest lesson, but the, the I mean, I'm so, I feel so lucky that this was the first thing I got to shoot that the way this whole thing happened was such a kind of seminal experience in filmmaking of all the crazy things that we were just discussing in terms of process. But so much of it was exactly that was going to this idea of trying to figure out, well, how, like listen to your gut, like what's right? Uh, what's the what's what what's the best way to express the story? Especially for something we were all nervous about making in some ways, is uh, it's a great lesson because that's filmmaking. Is, there's always a amount of element of risk when you're telling a story if you're going to pick the right choice or do the right thing. And there was so much experimentation and and collaboration and group nervousness in a way <laughs> doing this was an amazing thing because it's like a, I mean I I, I want to work on stories that I feel passionate about telling or passionate about their ability to like enlighten us a bit about how people work, like what makes people tick and which is what obviously Lynn is interested in. And that's, I realized that that's what I like about filmmaking. That's why this was such a, uh, you know, important thing for me, uh, just not because it was the first thing, but because it was about that. And that's realized that's the thing that I, I think it was one of your questions I think that you were going to ask later, but um, that I would take away from that is like the experience of doing that with everybody else. Like, okay, what are we trying to communicate? What are we trying to make? What are we trying? What's, what is about? What's this scene about? How can I express that? Is that's like a universal question in everything you make? And we got to do it all in the first thing, mm-hmm. first go around, mm-hmm. even though we were all just kids and then fumbling mm-hmm. our way through it. But it was, uh, it's yeah, it's just one of those like it's like a totally magical thing that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talked a little bit about Toronto and that, and I was wondering, do you remember sort of the first screenings you had and and um, preparing yourself for whatever reaction was going to come, and did you have to do any tweaks afterward where you're like, eh, that really didn't quite work, or whatever? Tweaks to the film? Yeah, did you end up going back in and, you know, changing anything after those first screenings, and how was the reaction in those first screenings? The first screenings of the film were kind of overwhelming, I think, for me, in retrospect, I, you know, I love this film fiercely. I still love this film fiercely. It's like, you know, the bastard child of my life. Kind of. <laughs> the film, it, it, it's almost got its own life. And at that point, I think I was really nervous and I just wanted to give it its best to put forward. So we tried to do everything that we could to support the film. I remember Molly and I, um, you know, before we went to the Toronto Film Festival, we went and talked to a, a PR person who taught us oh, yeah. how to do how to answer how to answer difficult questions, <laughs> how to steer. A, yeah, we were worried. We were worried that how people, to talk about how it. to talk about. It. We were worried people were just going to focus on the the deviant section. We really didn't. We really wanted to position the film as a love story, and that's how we always felt that it you know we yeah. always saw it that way it felt really vulnerable you know it was like our first thing and I was nude in it and it was your whole thing out there and Lynn had spent so long I mean we shot the film but then she cut for two years two years in 94 like, we shot it and then in her ex-boyfriend's basement. mother's basement <laughs> you know on Steenbeck like it was a long time and um and then yeah, I think we were just trying to figure out how to, um, yeah, how, to, how how you could put something out there that in a way felt so intimate because no one had seen it. And we had, you know, we were young and we had made this thing that felt right. And like I said, I didn't ever think, oh, this is 
what a bad idea. Why would we do this? Until we went to show it and we were like, oh my God, what have we done? Yeah. It was scary. I mean, I remember just being pretty much beside myself. Um, it's so funny. It, um, but the screening was really successful. It was. I and mean, that was shocking. On a film festival, like, I had no money. I had taken, like, I think I had one line on, like, a, a movie of the week of the Titanic, which oh, has haunted right. me the rest of my life. Because people are like, are you in the Titanic? But, and I got paid, you know thousand dollars or you know it's like nothing but it was enough that I could buy a ticket to come to the festival and we all stayed with friends and again we all piled in yeah the usual and then it and then it was out there and it was you know people really embraced it I I was shocked um I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop somehow it was the first person we showed it to was a friend of mine who's a producer, Stephen Hedges, and he watched it over at a friend's house, and we made dinner, and we sent him in the other room to look at it on a video to ask his advice. What should we do with this film? Will it get into festivals? What should we do? Should we show it to distributors? What are we? And he came back, and he had his classic big, wide grin on his face, and I didn't know if that was like a big, wide grin of, oh, my God, you just wasted your thought. You're so, you're so screwed, or this is really great. But he kept saying it was, he he just looked like he'd been run over by a truck or something. He just had this big smile on his face. And I thought, okay, but he's an old friend. He's not really going to tell me, you know, what it's all about. And I remember screening it. The next screening was for David McIntosh, who was a programmer at uh, Perspect- uh, Canadian Images or Perspectives Canada, it was called at the time. And he, the for the Toronto Film Festival, yeah. And he loved it. He came out of the theater. I remember pacing outside. It was him and a couple of the programmers. No one had seen the movie at this point. He came out and he just said, he goes, I want to tell you, I'm not supposed to tell anyone anything. But I'm just, and I'm not going to say anything, <laughs> but look at my face. And he had this huge smile on his face. And I thought, okay, that seems good. You know? <laughs> But it just exploded. I mean, the film went from a basement of obscurity, um, you know, to exploding at the Toronto Film Festival. I mean, there was a bidding war on the movie. Samuel Goldwyn ended up buying it. Um, I got an agent at William Morris. I had people trying yeah. to sign me. Same mm-hmm. for Molly. Um, it was like our lives yeah. changed overnight. It okay. went to Sundance. It went to Cannes. It was like... It felt like a dream of, it was strange. I was still always waiting for the other shooter drop. I kept thinking, this can't be, people are watching this. People will want to, it's going <laughs> to be, with these it's gonna be in the theaters, on. you know, and it was in the theaters. Yeah. And, um, it, yeah, it was kind of, I guess I had been bracing myself for the worst for so long and it was still, it took a while for the best to sink in. I don't remember the Toronto Film Festival screening as well as I do the Vancouver festival screening because it was after and we came back or maybe there was, we just had a screening in Vancouver I can't remember but that I remember that one because like my elementary school principal oh, came oh, and you know what I mean like yeah. all my family was yeah. there and I remember my dad's face and like just all everyone who worked on the film and that I have a very strong recollection of just what a big weird thing it was yeah and by then, there had already been a yeah. lot of, like, hubbub about the film yeah. and whatever. People had heard about it. They were excited. Yeah. But it's this little movie out of B.C., you know. Yeah. Um, B.C., you know, 
not known for making a lot of films like that, especially that not, time. Not, not known for, you know, and I was really, you know, to, to give some, some hats off, you know, um, people like Guy Madden and John Pays and Greg Klimke and all those guys were making indie films. And it was really those guys. I remember Tales from the Gimli Hospital, which was made for $20,000. I remember thinking, seeing that in the theater at the Cinematech and thinking, they can do that. Look how cool that is. So why not? You know, it's not impossible. But it's just still strange to me, even now, even now, this many years later, I'll be on a set somewhere and someone will come up to me and say, I just want you to know, I still yeah. remember your film. It's amazing. I still, I, or, or literally this week, I was out having dinner somewhere and I got, I just started chatting with the server and she said, oh, are you a filmmaker? And I said, yeah, and I, you know, so well, would you have made anything I might have seen? I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, Canadian cinema. And, oh, no, I like Canadian films. And so I mentioned it, and she said, oh, my God, I watched that film. I said, what, were you, like, eight years old? <laughs> she said, no, I've seen that film, like, 20 times. I remember I got it. Me and my girlfriends, we had summer parties. We were obsessed with it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it, it was, it's just strange to eat, to hear about it now, like, mm. that it has this life of its own. Um, and it's great. It's you know, I love that. I love that it's got its own thing. It's weird. It's a weird film. I, honestly, I saw it. It was weird. Yeah. Well, that was it, right? That was when you, when you gave me the story in Toronto. I said, hey, this is what I got to make. Yeah. And then you read the story. It was like, oh, yeah. So I was going to say, when she when you handed me the story, and I remember saying it that, that that coffee place in Toronto on Queen Street, like, this is what this is what's going to be. And throw out the other idea. This is what's going to be. <laughs> and I like, flipped through this nine-page story, and I'm like, okay. So uh, well, the one thing is, you know, at every small film, needed to have was you need to be unique and something you can only make a little film because no one you this film would not get five million dollars to be made based on that script it would only exist in this ever. way yeah. ever it'll only ever be this way mm-hmm. made by these you know by us at the time two dumb and stupid know it was what we're getting into and um and that and that's the thing and i think there's that there's always like a weird authenticity you can sort of sense when you watch a film with the intent of people like in the intent like you're the way you're talking about the character and everything else, you sort of sense that mm. it gets imbued with it and the whole mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. And this thing always had like, well, it's going to be this at least. And then who knows how people react, but it's never going to feel like it's, um, it's like disingenuous or it's got the wrong, like, you know, it's got an exploitive point of view. It's going to have this right. real heart to it. Yeah. And that's what those stories, those small films need to have. Right. And everyone senses that. And that's why it still it sticks with people. Like mm-hmm. Cause you do love it. <laughs> you do love, you do love Sandra. True. I think Molly's gonna have to split soon. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll. Sorry, uh, I have a. Well, I, I know think we've been really both. Sorry about that. Oh no, this has been fantastic. Rather have too much than not enough. I think both Rob and I have uh, nerdy questions for you, Molly. So, um, I'm gonna ask you mine first, and then Rob, because I'm I'm a pig that way. I am a huge Deadwood fan, and I know there was a rumor of a film happening. Is that still a chance, or is Deadwood officially dead? There's always a chance. Um, I mean, I, I kind of know as much as you do, and I know that there is a desire to make that film, both on the part of David Milch and HBO. Um, and I think that David is writing something, and I guess we'll just have to see. All right. I, 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 don't, I, don't, have, I don't really know is the truth. But I know they want to. 
We had uh, James Foley on, um, I think about a year ago, and he talked about working on House uh-huh. of Cards, and I'm a big House of Cards fan, so I always have to ask when we get people on. Um, will, yeah. you, will you be back in the next season? And also uh, just wanted to ask about uh, working with uh, Mahershala Ali, who uh, obviously just won the Oscar. I know. I'm, I love that man so much. He is he's such a good human, and um, really he... I mean, I really enjoyed working on House of Cards, but Mahershala is my favorite thing about it because I mean, we spent a lot of time together, a lot of my stuff was with him. And um, yeah, I'm so pleased and proud for him. Um, we are, it's sort of, you know, the answer really is no, but that it's House of Cards, they kind of move through characters and then people come back. And so basically we've, Marshall and I have both gone on to do other things in the last year and a half, and um, it doesn't mean we're not doing it anymore. It's just that we're doing other things. <laughs> it's so, you know, they're so crazy. They're so like, don't tell anybody ever. But, um, you know, I'm in Vancouver shooting Lost in Space for Netflix. So that's, that's where you're going to see me next. Well, I look forward to that. I didn't even know that they were doing that until I read your CV recently. So I'm very happy to hear that uh, they're rebooting Lost in Space. And I look forward to seeing you in it. Yeah, it's um, we've just been shooting about six weeks, and it's 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 pretty massive. The sets and that it's a big it's a big fat sci-fi TV show. I've never done anything like it. It's really fun, and uh, and it you know it's sort of a family show, so it's, it's, it's fun. You don't have funny. any Parker, seats. Parker is in it, and we've been talking about, I met Parker like 20 years ago, we had dinner together kind of around the time, like not that long after Kiss came out, and she, you know, had been doing all the stuff that she did, and we sort of came up at the same time, and um, it's been really, and she's just hilarious, uh, but it's been so cool to be working with her now, and we just talk about that time a lot, you know, and how, because there were films, you know, when after I did Kiss, there were, I had a lot of opportunity to do indie film and then people just stopped making, I mean, they didn't stop making them, but it got so much harder to make film, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and a lot of those people, most of us have been making, you know, television as television sort of got better. Um, and anyway, meandering but <laughs> as long as there's no cgi monkey in it i think we'll be okay yeah <laughs> um no. I, i've seen that version i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> i actually didn't mind that version that much i, I know haven't I, seen it i just i just worked with william hurt again i've worked with him a couple times and um yeah i thought i would i would save it for what so i was a little deeper into making the show <laughs> Greg, what are you working on these days? I know you've been very busy with uh, Game of Thrones as well as a lot of other things. Yeah, that's been. Uh, I've been fortunate to work on working on that for the last three years. I just uh, wrapped season seven uh, just a couple weeks ago. So, and then last year uh, on the break between them, I did, I did a small film called Rememory, which is a little bit going down memory lane as far as making a tiny movie with a twenty-day schedule, one and a half million dollars, and um, and that actually played Sundance uh, this past year. So. Uh, it was very Peter Dinklage, uh, very interesting little script about, you know, someone making making a machine that records memories and 
using it to process trauma and it was structured as a thriller um, or a bit of a mystery, I should say. And, uh, and yeah, I did a TV pilot after that, but that's pretty much it. So now I'm, uh, I've got a bit of a break, uh, hoping to go back on Thrones for the last year, but I don't know if that'll happen or not. It all depends on the schedules with um, everybody because there's several DPs and there's fewer episodes next year. So fingers crossed I have to go back and do some more. Is Peter Dinklage as cool in real life as he is in the movies? Yeah, I like Peter a lot. He's uh, he's he's pretty intense. He's very he's a very smart guy. Like like almost all the cast on that show, and um, they uh, they all want it to be really good, so they all try really hard. And he's the only American, so he's he has the unenviable task of always doing an accent, which is mm. sometimes uh, a bit challenging over time. When you get like you know, he has some big he has some big scenes. There's some long scenes to do, like seven pages in there. That's a lot of stuff mm. to remember. But yeah, he's lovely. He's got such amazing eyes, and he's so expressive and. It was a real treat to get to another project with him. That's awesome. And Lynn, what are you up to these days? Um, well, I'm currently um, writing the script for Kiss Part 2. <laughs> um, she goes back. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I just finished doing a, a TV movie with uh, Rachel Lee Cook, which was really awesome. And uh, it was kind of funny because she knew about Kiss, so that was kind of funny because the project we were doing was a um, family content right. comedy, uh, romantic comedy. Um, and she sort of looked at me and said, so how did you get here? <laughs> uh, but it was really fun. It was great working with her. And, um, and then I'm still, you know, I still have my finger in the indie world. And I just found out I got a major grant from the Canada Council to do a short film project that Greg is going to collaborate with me on. Um, and try and bring some folks back together that I like working with. Um, it's a, it's a sort of non, well, I guess it's a narrative film, but it's a non-narrative dance project. It's kind of like a, uh, multidisciplinary genre project, but it'll be really interesting because I want to, you know, when you're directing TV, you're basically trying to fit into, you know, you're trying to, you're one of many directors trying to, continue the vision and keep a consistency of the vision so it's kind of fun to be given creative carte blanche to just do whatever i'd like to do with what i know now you know mm-hmm. it's just, you just keep learning all the time so it's great to be able to have some um real creative freedom in that in that way you know sounds great well i'm, I'm glad you're working on the sequel because i've got an idea for you <laughs> you do. Yes, that's fantastic. You All know right. what? I actually am talking about it because I saw the trailer for Train Spotting too. Oh, I know. Yeah. And then I was thinking in my mind, man, if they could do a sequel, <laughs> and then I just laughed about it. The Larson Funeral Home. There you go. Exactly. Well, either that, or I was thinking like you know, thirty years from now. Molly's a senior citizen. Sandra Larson's an old folks' home. Plenty of dating opportunities in the old folks' home. <laughs> Truly, so. they're just like they're just dying left, right, and center. There you go. Oh, and and her, her child, her child's a necrophile. Oh, oh my god! god. That was awful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bad jokes, but th- but not uh, not a joke. Serious. This was this was great, and thank you so much, everyone, for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks yeah. a lot. It was Thanks really so great. much. Yeah. I'm so glad that this worked out. I just even thought, like, I technically, know. it's like, oh, God, this is going to be impossible to interview three people. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys were fantastic. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Like I said, Thanks. it was 
just been a uh, enjoyed the film when it came out. I think I was a senior in high school or right out of high school, and it stuck with me ever since. And I was like, we got to do this on the show because it's one of those that I think uh, maybe some people don't know about and love to hear these great stories behind the scenes. So thank you so much. Oh, oh yeah. Thanks, thanks for the interest. It's been uh, it's been great. Thanks so much. Thank um, you. I'll, I'll try. And, can I mention your podcast on my? And I'm not, I'm not a big social media person, but I do it occasionally. Can I mention this on there? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, of course. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. Bye. And, uh, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday for us. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right, we are back and we are talking about Kissed. Now, while I was watching this, I was reminded a lot of the film Secretary. I don't know if it was that it was based on a short story, that it's an unusual love story, that it is handled very well, what it was. But something about that, you know, you you talked earlier, Axel, about uh, the idea of pairing Kissed with Martyrs. I would say that Kissed and Secretary would make a really good Agreed 100%. I could see that. I could see that. You know, the thing that's interesting, we um, we were talking about this before we uh, recorded the show, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to use for bump music in the show, is um, it's hard for me to try and find places where necrophilia is in the culture, uh, in art, without it being either a joke or something really dark and horrifying. Um, this, I, I think, Kissed really has a place of its own in using that subject matter in a very respectful and interesting way that is not overly comical or just downright nasty from a horror perspective, you know? So um, I, I, I was debating, like, do I put this song in the show? Do I put that song in the show? I'm like, no, it's a kind of jokey. So I'm trying to. <laughs> well, it's funny because Axel messaged me offline and was just like, oh, you should use, uh, you know, this song or this song on here. I was like, well, uh, actually, Rob was, had brought up those songs before. Uh, it's his episode. He's going to edit it. So whatever he ends up choosing is what he'll choose. But it's funny that uh, he was. Yeah, and that was the are. reference up front. If you didn't get what Axel said is a Alice Cooper tune, which can actually be used uh, in two different ways. When we talk about the song Cold Ethel, Ethel being um, Ethel's dead, lives in the fridge, you know, his girlfriend. One thing. Ethel could also be meaning ethyl alcohol, which we know is uh, Alice Cooper was an alcoholic. So it could also be a reference to alcoholism. And of course, Ethel's dead and lives in the fridge, meaning, you know, cold liquor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, right behind the mayonnaise, I believe. The song that actually got stuck in my head more than any of the others was not about necrophilia, but it was that horrid This Kiss, This Kiss song. This Kiss! This kiss, this kiss. 
if you'll remember that one. And it would not stop going through my head since I signed on for this episode. <laughs> hmm. I was just going to ask, are there any other places in writing, film, music, whatever, um, that you think handles uh, necrophilia in interesting ways? You know, um, as I was watching this, I was thinking of um, <laughs> I was thinking of this uh, movie called, I believe it's Diane East. Um, which, and I'll have to double check that title, but it was, uh, it was a tough to find movie for a while. And it was kind of a, um, it was a, uh, uh, a movie about a man who was living as a woman and they find out after she's dead because the mortician is a necrophiliac and he goes in and he goes to make love with the corpse and finds that this was a man the whole time uh, so that was in my mind the other thing that was in my mind a lot and it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with necrophilia though there are some mentions of it in this uh, probably more than I remember um, uh, if you guys ever get a chance well I think all of her stuff is pretty good but um, Stiff by Mary <clears throat> Roach uh, the full title is Stiff the Curious Lives of Human Cadavers going through kind of the whole history of what you could find as far as how human cadavers have been used throughout uh, at least the last 200 years. The whole idea of the um, you know uh, uh, medical uses for cadavers and what happens. You know, you mentioned uh, the um, uh, what was that book? Actually, the uh, the art of dying. And this uh, book really reminded me of that as far as uh, what happens at funerals and those kind of things. So it's it, it, to me it was kind of the definitive volume uh, as far as what. Um, what purpose corpses corpses serve after uh, after the living have left us? I guess the two that popped into my head right away take it to an extreme and really blow it up to the point where it's it's comedic and horrific. But I think there's a core to them that's interesting. If you pull it out, is uh, the original Hellraiser movie in terms of the relationship between Frank and julia and how she's trying to make him more alive but still in love with him when he's dead i always thought that was kind of clever and interesting in a way how far would you go uh, and i love um the scenes in the middle and end of texas chainsaw massacre 2 where it's really not sure who's 100 percent alive and who's 100 percent dead anymore and there's a really good essay in a book called Skin Shows by an author that eludes me, where it basically says at some point in that movie, because there's so much dead flesh and costuming going around, um, you don't know who's what and what's who. And I guess also anything that deals with Jeffrey Dahmer and his desire to have a you know, zombie automaton as his full-time lover, although that's real life, definitely has a take on necrophilia that's uncomfortable and that, oh sorry i have one more okay <laughs> um there's a book called exquisite corpse about basically two Dahmer types living in new orleans and it's by poppy z bright it's extremely upsetting i read it in a day and um also i'll, I'll stop soon i promise with the necromantic series i always thought it had some interesting moments although horrifying it's interesting that you bring up Exquisite Corpse because you think I would have remembered that considering I did an adaptation of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would agree with you on Exquisite Corpse. I, I did write an adaptation of that probably about 15 years ago with a 
a writer in the Chicago area. It's registered in the um, Writers Guild West if uh, anyone's looking for a film to make. But um, it, it, you brought up Dahmer, and specifically the the one that I would tell people uh, to read on Dahmer is by um, uh, a cartoonist from the Cleveland area named Durf. And um, Durf did a book a few years ago called My Friend Dahmer. And uh, he had gone to school with Jeffrey Dahmer. They had, uh, they were in high school together. They were friends. They hung out. And what the book does is it tells the stories of him through his own experience of being his friend through high school. But also the one thing that, that he reminded me of when he went around doing a book tour and he came to Dearborn, uh, to green brain comics and he did a, uh, a signing and a, and a presentation was he said, you know, unlike a lot of the other, uh, serial killers who either were killed, they died. Um, they didn't talk. There were some that didn't talk. He's like when Dahmer was arrested before he was tried, he told him everything. He, there were these huge, um, long extended interviews in which they, you know, transcribed everything about him. So he goes, I was able to put together the pieces of the, of his youth. And basically what you get in my friend Dahmer is, um, his youth up till, um, just after high school graduation, because his first victim was about a month after he got out of high school and he had killed him, uh, and put, the body like in the crawl space of his parents' house. That victim was not found until after everything happened in, um, in Milwaukee. So they went back and they did, you know, the whole, you know, DNA check, you know, with the light and everything. And they found that this, you know, just all lit up. So, uh, but some of the early things that sort of are similar to, to Kist in a way in, uh, in Dahmer's story is um, him handling roadkill, him tacking bugs and various things to this little shed that he had in the backyard and, and stuff like that. So starting off with animals and, and kind of going from there. The, um, the other one that we mentioned briefly in the interview with um, Lynn and Molly and Greg that we talk about in there is from a book called Apocalypse Culture from the 80s. And actually, uh, Barbara Gowdy talks about it a little bit. I asked her about uh, Karen Greenlee. And Karen Greenlee was uh, an actual woman who was a mortician's assistant and would drive the bodies to, you know, the cemetery and everything. And she was eventually found out and tried for having sex with the corpses. So, um, so there's that story that's out there. There's an interview with her from probably 30 years ago. And I guess after she gave that interview and, and all of that, she changed her name and tried to, uh, change her life because it got a lot of attention when that story originally came out. So that would be worth a read if you're interested in sort of the, uh, I guess, the factual basis for uh, the Molly Parker character. I was just thinking, I was as I was looking up you know, just a little bit about necrophilia and, and how it would be treated and how common it is. And I don't think it's a very common thing to happen. Um, but I did look at when states established their rules against necrophilia. And I may be wrong. I didn't do a very thorough search, but I'm not entirely sure Michigan has a law on the books yet. So you you may want to look mm. into that. I might be wrong. <laughs> well, what are you doing on Thursday, Mike? <laughs> 
You know, I actually tried to find a necrophiliac to talk to for this episode, and of all of the crazy and not-so-crazy fetishes that are uh, listed on uh, FetLife, uh, necrophilia is not one of them. And then, of course, now there are fewer and fewer fetishes listed on FetLife because of the whole um, visa crackdown on uh, websites, on anything that could be considered pornographic. Um, amazingly, uh, over the last just three months, it's almost like there was a new administration in office or something, but over the last three months, Visa has cracked down on any website that hosts anything that uh, hosts or discusses or talks about um, a lot of different uh, fetishes and interests. Uh, they are uh, pulling um, funding from anything that might have uh, uh, things that smack of non um, non-heterosexual uh, vanilla sex. So it was kind of amazing. But yeah, even before that, before <laughs> when we first started to set up this episode, I looked on FET and that was one of the things that wasn't there. So I, I was very surprised by that. But yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very curious. Uh, you know, uh, Michigan seems maybe, maybe it's a hotbed of, uh, <laughs> of necrophilia. We don't know. I, I know the other one that was sort of a hot button over the last few years and certain states have gotten around to passing it was uh, bestiality or zoophilia. And, um, and I know that in some states, um, the, the joke still goes that, you know, uh, you know, Ohio, where the where the men are men and the sheep are scared. So, <laughs> yeah, we should do zoo one of these days on the show. That's one I definitely want to watch in some sort of a way that my young daughter will never ever know that it was in our house. Just like scrub <laughs> it, bring in Harvey Keitel from Pulp Fiction, just be done with it. But a uh, necrophilia story, not personal. I remember reading in I think it was in '96 in Iowa they caught somebody with a corpse and they went to go prosecute and they found out that nobody had put the law in because it hadn't come up so there wasn't anything they could do and the law came shortly thereafter from from the research i did i think that and this i'm not 100 percent sure on this but i think that actual you know corpse penetration or having sex with a corpse is like maybe an extreme of necrophilia what you're more likely to see is people obsessed with imagining these encounters or doing a lot of fetishizing of things that involve death. Like I think of her early stages with the, the dead birds and things like that, probably being a little closer to what people involved with necrophilia now, you know, might be doing and very few would graduate to these upper levels in part because it'd be difficult to find resources, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. We've had a couple of weird cases here in Michigan over the last few years with uh, bodies being taken out of graves. There was one near uh, City Airport in Detroit. Uh, I believe they tracked it back to some member of the family that believed that they could resurrect the dead. So they went and dug up the family member and did that. And then there was also a story of a guy who was actually making a lot of money on uh, the sale of parts for medical purposes. And he was getting the parts in sort of unsavory manners, and he was not um, storing them correctly. So there was a thing with a lot of um, uh, money and people's relatives disappearing and wondering, you know, what happened when they donated their body to science in some manner. 
or to this guy, they had some deal with him or something. Um, I, I can't remember the particulars of both cases, but I know that they were in the free press probably over the last five years. And it just was very odd <laughs> that both of those popped up here. You know, if if you if you do your uh, double feature with, with Kissed, the short in between would have to be Aftermath um, by Nacho Serta, maybe? The short film of a embalmer waiting until everybody's gone and then having sex with the corpse and then grinding it up and feeding it to its dog. And there's, you know, there's really no extra details to it. It's just a really brutal, straightforward. I don't even remember any music. It's about 15 minutes long. So if you're doing it at the drive in, that would be perfect for your popcorn time. Hmm. You know, uh, before people start sending tweets at us or leaving comments, uh, we are aware that there is a movie version of My Friend Dahmer that is actually, uh, it's going to be at the Tribeca 2017 um, Film Festival. So as long as it's not pulled like uh, the uh, anti-vax documentary was, was that last year or two years ago? But as, as long as that doesn't happen, uh, it'll be at the uh, Tribeca Festival. And all this talk about um, making love with the dead and everything, I mean, we haven't even touched on one of the things that has just been, I know there have always been zombie movies basically since the earliest days of uh, cinema, but just the whole idea of a man falling in love with a zombie or a woman uh, falling in love with a zombie, that has been such a, a thing. I mean, uh, there's that warm bodies. The one that comes to my mind and the one that uh, I guess the, the love is the purest to me is the uh, Cemetery Man, a.k.a. Delamore Delamorte, and the affair between Nyagi, his assistant, and uh, she, played by uh, Anna Falci. Just that relationship is uh, just so wonderful to watch. And, um, I mean, I, I say let's not stray too far down that zombie path, but this whole idea of zombies and, you know, to, to your earlier point, Rob, as far as the guy who thought he could bring back the corpse, I mean, this whole idea of controlling death and being able to continue a relationship or start a relationship after someone has passed away, that whole idea of the control that I was talking about with the Sandra character from Kissed and just her control over death. Death, to me, that seems like so much of what zombies can represent, either that fear of death, that that embodiment of the fear of death, or that fear of death and the control of life that uh, is so crucial. Um, th that seems like so much of what these relationships in certain movies uh, are bringing to us. Well, one that I'll bring up because we actually did it on the show. And, you know, as I said, don't get too far afield on the zombies was uh, deadheads. So that's uh, zombies uh, still love the living and decide to go reconnect. So that's from the opposite angle. I suppose the dead seek you out as opposed to you seeking out the dead. So and highly recommended if folks haven't seen deadheads yet, uh, you need to get on that. So we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. La grande illusion, un aspect encore peu connu de la guerre, c'est, d'après des récits authentiques, la vie des prisonniers de guerre en Allemagne. Bonne nouvelle En quoi de neuf C'est une lettre de ma tante qui habite Bordeaux. Il paraît qu'il y a là-bas un monde fou. Trinkverbot. Il est sévèrement interdit de parler avec les sentinelles. Trinkstensverbot, madame. Albert Botten. La grande illusion. 
avec Jean Gabin. Dita Parlo. Le café est prêt. Pierre Frenet. D'un côté des enfants qui jouent aux soldats, et de l'autre des soldats qui jouent comme des enfants. Et Eric von Streuel. Bien. Il est foutu mon pantalon d'Asté, Hipkin, Modo, Péclet et Dalio. Tiens, je vais en pousser une tellement je suis content. Il a tête à petit d'allure. La grande illusion est un film sur la guerre où vous ne verrez ni bataille ni espion. Prisonniers de guerre, les officiers, autorisés à recevoir des vivres de France, sont parfois, par un curieux paradoxe, mieux nourris que leurs geôliers. Poulet froid, pâté de foie gras aux truffes du Périgord ou macro-mariné du Capitaine Cook. Nous allons pouvoir vous remercier pour toutes vos gentillesses. Qu'est-ce qu'ils vont se taper les petits pères, alors Les distractions antirafales qui leur sont permises laissent libre cours à leur imagination. Il n'y a pas que les robes qui sont courtes. Alors les cheveux coupés aussi Les cheveux coupés ouais. Oh, alors on doit se figurer qu'on couche avec un garçon Moi, c'était avec une brune. À qui Une amie de ma mère. On aime tout ce qui est de respectable, qui s'occupait de bonnes œuvres. C'est pas de veine, parce qu'en général, chez les gens bien, c'est plutôt là. Connaissez-vous Marguerite Une femme ni grande ni petite, qui a les yeux troublants, un arrosé blanc, une petite bouche d'enfant, et bien cette beauté suprême... De ses rêves, de cette inaction, du désir de rejoindre les camarades du front, naît l'idée d'évasion. L'évasion devient une obsession, ou un sport. Tu tout Pour m'évader Déguise en taupe Pinambour Et demain, c'est à qui le tour À vous, mon capitaine, si vous le permettez. Elle est solide, au moins Oh là là, tu peux y aller, j'en supporterai 10 comme toi et 5 comme moi. En vase clos les individualités s'exaspèrent. En dehors de toutes les conventions admises, des affinités réunissent les hommes par-dessus les frontières. Affinités populaires. Vous parlez bien le français Oui, j'ai travaillé chez Gnome à Lyon. Sans blague. Moi aussi. Affinités aristocratiques. J'ai connu euh, un bois dieu à Berlin. Un grand prix de bois dieu. Ah oui C'est mon cousin. Il y a 18 mois qu'on est ensemble et on se dit encore vous. Je dis vous à ma mère et vous à ma femme. Roger You understand that if you do not obey my order now, I'll have to shoot. Je vous demande pardon. En dépit des conventions aussi, les affinités sentimentales apportent l'espoir. Français. Franzose, you first tu as pris un Pendant 18 mois, je me suis fait engueuler, j'ai jamais rien compris, mais son allemand à elle, je comprends tout. Venez voir la réalité dans la grande illusion. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of La Grande Illusion. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Rob and Axel. Rob, what has been keeping you busy these days, sir? Uh, just life in general. So I'm still doing uh, some writing. I had a piece in the Metro Times uh, a few weeks ago. 
So I was pretty happy with that uh, actual news story as opposed to arts and culture stuff. And um, still pushing the Orbit book. Uh, my record label, Holdfast, hfvinyl.com. Still got some records up there. Uh, dark subjects, maybe. I don't know. A little jazz, a little rock. Um, good stuff overall. Give it a look if you're uh, into the vinyl stuff. You might dig it. And uh, beyond that, uh, just staying busy with work, traveling quite a bit, and... Um, happy to be on because I don't uh, get to hang out with Mike quite as much as I used to. Very cool. And Axel, when you're not hanging out at funeral homes, what are you up to? Actually, to be honest, I think I would have a really good face to be a funeral home director. I, I convey a lot of sympathy and, and, and empathy, but that that's a different story. Um, right now, I've got a bunch of short stories coming out with Roy C. Booth. I, um, there's a Twin Cities horror film, a horror play festival coming up. And uh, I got lightning bolted by an idea for that that I think could actually legitimately frighten some people. So I'm going to write that and enter it, hopefully make it in and, you know, terrify somebody and cause them lasting trauma, which is, of course, my goal. And primarily what I'm doing is watching a six-month-old daughter grow and develop and taking uh, dorky pictures of her holding. um, My favorite is her holding and looking very very carefully at the Hellraiser puzzle box and that's up by my bed and she's her name's Evelyn and she is just the absolute best. But if you want to keep up on any of my stuff, axelcohagen.com is the best place to do it. Gotta say guys, it is an absolute pleasure to be here with the OGs Rob St. Marie and Mike White. I did not get to take a drink because Louis Bunuel was not mentioned. That upsets me somewhat, but I'm still honored. Maybe I can work it in. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what she said. (laughs) Fabulous. The whole idea of having, uh, by traumatizing someone and scarring them for life, I think that's why you have children. Yes. My actual goal is to get her to traumatize her mother, who is the love of my life and wonderful, but I really like torturing her. That's fun. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. You know, I ask that every single week. I think we've got 182 ratings. Um, we've actually been on more weeks than we have ratings, so I'm really kind of hoping maybe folks can go over there and do that. I'm not going to do, like, the whole bill uh, by force uh, uh, OTC guilt trip kind of thing. I'm not going to sit here for 20 minutes and go on about that and, you know, nobody loves me kind of thing, but I'm just saying it'd be nice, you know, go on over iTunes. It's free to join, leave a review, do it. And you can also go over to Patreon, which is actually even more important. uh, Patreon.com slash projection booth, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
dead before they're cool. The bluing flesh for me to hold. Cadaver eyes upon me see nothing. Before they rise No farewells, no goodbyes I never even knew Your now rotting face While friends and lovers Mourn your silly grave I have other uses for you, darling
Are you a pathology student? I, I've never seen you around before. I work in a funeral home. I'm studying embalming. Really? You know, that's really the only way to know a corpse. What do you think? If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.